Hey everyone, while we've been looking backward during our Death to Wedding event, we've actually had some big recent developments with respect to Superman on the big screen. In fact, the latest episode of my Patreon-exclusive DC Movie Rewatch podcast, aka Digging for Justice, is all about the current, recently released Black Adam movie. If you'd like to hear my discussion with real-life Lobo cosplayer Justin DeVoe all about Black Adam, be sure to head on over to patreon.com slash anthonydesiato. That episode, along with all episodes of Digging for Justice and a ton of other bonus episodes, are available at the $1 level. Thanks to everyone for their support, and I hope you enjoy the finale of Death to Wedding. One year ago, we explored the period in Superman history from 1986 to 1993 in our series Crisis Till Death. Now, the podcast returns to the Triangle Era as we survey the post-death and rain landscape in comics, toys, video games, and television. This is Death Till Wedding, a new seven-part epic covering 1993 through 1996. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I'm your host, Anthony Desiato. This is Death Till Wedding, Part 7, the finale. Joining me to discuss Lois and Clark's breakup and eventual reconciliation and wedding is returning guest Scott Honig. Scott, welcome back. Thank you so much. As always, I am more than delighted to be here, especially at the end of this just spectacular event. Uh, I, I couldn't be I couldn't be more happy to join you to talk about these comics. Well, I really appreciate that. It's great to have you back. This is your first appearance in this event. Last year, obviously, we had you for three in a row when we did Crisis Till Death. We had three episodes in a row with you. Each episode was about a 50-issue reading assignment. So my point is, you you really, uh, you learned your lesson from last year. And this time, you're like, I'll do one. <laughs> yeah, we kept it to we kept it to one, but it was a good one. It's, it's right here at the end, and there's a lot of meat in this in this section. So it's interesting to go from, you know, earlier on in the triangle era to much, much later, several years down the road in the triangle era and really see how, uh, how it's evolved. Creative teams have evolved, how storylines have evolved, where certain characters are at this point. Um, it, was, it was a really fun experience. Good. And I, I really want to thank you because I know you're under the weather and you're soldiering through and, and we're doing this and I really appreciate it. And I'm sure the audience does as well. I know we were talking off mic for uh, for me and my family. We've been trading coals off and on. I have other guests we've rescheduled because they've had coals. I think it's been a rough fall. There's been a lot going around. So for people listening, if you're currently contending with anything, if you've gotten over something recently, we're all in the same boat. And I hopefully that this uh, hopefully this podcast can provide a little uh, a little escape, a little entertainment. Yeah, we certainly feel your pain if you're uh, if you're going through it as well. But uh, you know, I'll just say right up right up front. I apologize if the quality of my voice isn't what it usually is on the podcast. But uh, I'm going to do my best, and we're going to have some. Fun. You sound you sound like deeper and huskier. I do. Yes, yes, but I do. It works. My point is, you're pulling it off. It works for you. Hey, I'll just sing bass. That's all. <laughs> All right. As always, these are the these are the issues that we read. This was, if my math is right, I believe a thirty-seven issue reading assignment. So, uh, not a light lift, not as heavy as you and I have done before, but not a light lift. And I appreciate you uh, reading all of this with me. So, we read Man of Steel fifty-five through sixty-three by Louis Simonson and John Bogdanov. Superman one eleven through one eighteen by Dan Jurgens and Ron Friends. Adventures of Superman five thirty-four through five forty-one by Carl Kiesel and Stuart Immonen. 
Action 720 through 728 by David Michelinie, Kieran Dwyer, and then succeeded by Tom Grummet on pencil duties towards the end of this stretch. And The Man of Tomorrow, the quarterly title, issues five and six by Roger Stern, first with Tom Grummet and later with Paul Ryan. And of course, we can't leave off probably the most important issue that we read in this entire batch, The Wedding Album, one shot. By everybody. By everyone. Yes, it was it was a jam issue. Basically, anyone who had been working on the Superman books who was still around was was here for it. And it was a lot of fun. And, you know, we'll get to it. But that was far and away a highlight for me. And I was I was very pleasantly surprised. I guess maybe I shouldn't be because we see how these books with five books with five different creative teams work in concert all the time. So I shouldn't be surprised. But I was still struck by how how seamlessly the book flowed. It didn't feel like there were that many different people working on it, even though clearly there were, but I felt like it, it really just, it, it just, it worked. It tied together. What did you think? Yeah. I mean, it was in so many ways what it was designed to be, which is a culmination of not just the issues we read here, but really everything I think since Byrne launched the book in the eighties, um, everything seemed to be building up toward this. And I think you've discussed this before, but there had already been plans to marry Clark and Lois a little bit earlier in the run, but because of the the goings on and the Lois and Clark TV show, they were forced to sort of push it back because they wanted, didn't want the comics to be so off from the TV show. And so they had to break them up and, and keep them apart for a while and sort of create a little bit of a distance. And so if maybe that even made it feel more, uh, more fitting or a little bit more dramatic the fact that, you know, it wasn't an inevitability that they would get married, that, that there was some doubt whether they would come back together, whether Clark and or Lois would end up with somebody else because there were little teases throughout this run of each of them maybe flirting with another person. Nothing came of any of it, but, um, but it really does feel like an appropriate sort of milestone issue. And it's huge. I mean, it's a big issue. I think 60 something pages or so. It's 90 80. pages. It's 90 pages. 90 pages. Yeah. Really felt it. And not in a bad way. Just felt it. Yeah. It was, it was hefty. I read it digitally. Uh, sadly, I no longer own it. It, it, it went uh, years ago when I, when I divested myself of those single issues, but I read it digitally and yeah, I opened it up. I was like, Oh wow. Like I had forgotten just how, how voluminous it, it was, but yeah, I mean, a couple of things, man. I, I, I too was thinking about the effect of the Lois and Clark TV show. And we, we covered the show in the last episode, but as far as its effect on the comics, you're spot on. And you know, we talked about this last year when we did uh, Crisis Till Death, how the creative teams were planning toward a wedding. And then all of a sudden this new TV show springs up and it's going to focus on the romance. And, you know, a misconception I had and maybe other fans had too, was that I always thought it was the television side kind of putting the comics division in its place and being like, no, no, you don't get them married first. But according to everything that I've been reading, it was actually DC Comics that said, no, like we want to wait, we'll, we'll tie in with the show. And that gave us the death of Superman and subsequently funeral for a friend and reign of the Superman. And then moving forward down the line a bit, uh, there was, I guess, always this intention to have the comics and the show sync up. And so I, my understanding is that is what led to this breakup storyline because the show still wasn't there yet. But then the TV show, again, this is my understanding, ended up marrying off the characters earlier than initially anticipated. It ended up being the third episode of season four. And that's why 
you know, reading the books, I think this is pretty apparent <laughs> that the breakup, everything gets resolved pretty fairly abruptly, you know, and everything gets tied up and they're, you know, they're, they're back in, in wedding mode really fast. So it's interesting to see how the creative teams had to pivot, but I would say, and tell me if you agree or not, I think for the most part, more often than not, necessity proved the mother of invention. And I feel like with the death and, and funeral and, and rain, and then even with this breakup storyline, to whatever extent they were born out of having to ke keep up with the show, it led to some really great stories. Like they made it work. Yeah, for me, reading uh, this run, which I should say, I, I owned at one point a small handful of the issues that we read for, for this. I never read certainly the entire run in, in one shot. I mean, I just had really pieces of it. Um, never, never quite collected. So this is the first time I was reading the whole thing. I would say that um, it led to some really, some pieces of some really good stories. I, I can't say as a whole that I thought the, you know, all of the stories sort of cohered in a way that I probably would have liked. And, and it sort of led me to, to, to the place where, especially comparing it back to the earlier Triangle era, the creative teams, and, and specifically the editorial teams, had been had been on this essentially weekly schedule for so long, for so long. I mean, years at this point, probably coming coming on a decade, um, and it's it, it would be impossible to have maintained the quality that we saw in certain fits and spurts, especially lead, right leading up to and just coming out of the death of Superman. I think it would have been unreasonable to expect that the stories would have remained at such a high quality. There's bound to be some repetition. There's bound to be some redundancies. There's bound to be, you know, characters who are your favorites who get left behind characters who become a little bit uncharacteristic. Um, so I don't think that the run sort of, fired on all cylinders for me, but there were definitely moments in it that I thought were really fun, really worthy. And, and I'm excited to talk all about it, the good, the bad, and, and the, I wouldn't say ugly, but the less than attractive. No, I hear you. I hear you. And so one, one quick note I want to make. So this is the end of this seven part event and people are listening to this. If you're listening to this, the day it drops, it's November 8th. Uh, we have an episode coming up next week, of course, on, on November 15th, November 18th, for those uh, keeping score and doing the math, is the 30th anniversary of Superman 75, aka the death of Superman. So as much as this has been, and this is a seven episode event, it's really eight. So you want to make sure that you're here, uh, that you're here next week for this. And, but as far as this event, uh, it's a sort of kind of tie all of this together, all these conversations I've been having uh, with, with all of you incredible guests, I had a very different experience with this reading, pro the reading in, in particular. We also talked about Lois and Clark, we talked about the video game, but the comics in particular, I had basically the opposite experience that I thought I was going to have coming in. I was going into this reading assignment so excited for the fall of Metropolis, for all the conduits. I've been talking about conduit for two years on this podcast. Oh, conduit, yes, conduit. Have. And then we got there and yeah, you know, I don't need to rehash it. You know, I, we did episodes on it, but you know, I, I I was a bit left that let down. I felt like I felt like in a lot of ways it did sort of live live up to what the criticism or live down to I guess what the criticisms mm -hmm. of the era have been that they were sort of always chasing after 
something along the lines of the death. And you see it even just in the titles of the storylines, <laughs> Dead Again, Death of Clark Kent, you know, all of that. And I felt like a lot of what I had loved about the earlier Triangle era, in particular, the focus on the supporting cast and the subplots and the heart, I felt like a lot of that got lost in the shuffle in the first part. But then when we get into the trial, which we covered a couple episodes ago, and now this breakup and then the eventual reconciliation and wedding, I found that soul again that I, that I, that I was missing in the earlier part. And so the, the stretches of this era that I thought I was going to love the most and then versus what I either thought I didn't, wouldn't love so much or just wasn't thinking about to, too much, to be honest. It, it ended up being the complete opposite. So fascinating, like just a fascinating experience going through this. It's so interesting uh, that you say that. I mean, I, you know, having, having heard uh, the episodes about some of those middle sections of, of this run um, and hearing you, you know, express the fact that you were a little uh, underwhelmed um, by some of it and, and Listen, the conversations, to your credit, never became dour, never became, you know, negative. It was never a bitch fest, uh, you know, against, you know, the, the work itself. Um, it was still always entertaining. And as you said to all of your guests at the end of the episodes, the conversations were all the fun, um, whether whether you enjoyed the material or, or, or didn't so much. Um, for me, this section, I, I understand completely why you say the, the heart was back in it. And, we, and you and I have talked about in, in several of our episodes, the fact that personally, and I think you would agree with me, it's the, the human moments, the, the human connections, the character, the relationship connections that are far more interesting most of the time than the punchy punchy. And, um, and so to follow the breakup of Clark and Lois, which happens right at the beginning of this, this run, um, and then the efforts to reconcile, which pretty much all fail. And then really the two of them growing apart um, to the point where, and we'll get there, but, but Lois leaves Metropolis and is not in the books for a while. And then, of course, again, you know, it is called Death to Wedding. So spoilers, they're going to make it back together. Um, there is a, a real sort of heart of a through line that runs through all of that. Um, I found it sometimes a little bit frustrating that it seemed like there was this need to inject some kind of physical conflict into every issue. And many of them felt sort of stuck in, manufactured, a little forced because, I, I, and I get it, it's a visual medium and Superman is a visceral character and, you know, you've got to have him sort of fighting something, otherwise you're going to lose some fans. I, I fully understand and appreciate that. It just made the whole thing feel a little bit more drawn out than it needed to. And I felt myself wanting to come back to like, what's happening with, with Clark? Like, what's he thinking? How, how much is he missing Lois right now? And, and where's Lois and what's she up to? And does she feel any sort of longing for him whatsoever? You know, I just, I kind of wanted the soap opera of it all rather than the, the physical conflicts. Totally. And in terms of the physical conflicts we get, you know, we do get some familiar faces, Parasite pops up in, in these issues, but we also get these, you know, kind of generic uh, Star Labs monsters. We get this new villain, Obsession, uh, this woman, mm -hmm. Dana, that Jimmy was kind of seeing, but really she was just obsessed with Superman and she develops these powers. So it's like when, when there are the physical conflicts, yeah, I don't know that these were necessarily the most compelling ones. And yeah, it's like it took away from 
some really interesting interpersonal stories. And I know I was trying to remember, you know, what I thought of this as a kid. And I, I definitely remember reading these stories with the two of them breaking up. I don't know that it, I don't know that I had much of a take on it at eight or nine or 10. I, it it didn't put me off, but it wasn't necessarily something I was so gripped by. But now it's like, all I want is the soap opera stuff. And, you know, this has come up when we've talked about Superman and Lois. You know, I don't care if there's an episode that's very light on action or has none. You know, and I always use this example, but there was one of the episodes like so early on in the first season where we only really see him as Superman once at the beginning and then like a little bit at the end. And, you know, I remember, you know, people kind of griping about that online and it's like, oh man, like I just want them on the farm, like the family stuff, Lois and Clark, like dealing with their marital issues. Like, and again, I recognize maybe I'm at a point in my life where like, that's what I'm more interested in and I, I relate to it more. So I get it. And in fairness, and I was really thinking about this, I give these creative teams a lot of credit for spending as much time as they did on the relationship drama, right? Because that's ultimately not but they're there to serve, right? Like they're, you know, they're writing comics for, you know, a wide audience, but something that certainly could be understood and appreciated and enjoyed by, by young people. Uh, and it's the nineties, say what you, you know, <laughs> the certain hallmarks of the era. So the fact that, and, and I really, I was really registering, there were a number of moments in, in, a, in a few issues where there was a fair amount of real estate devoted to showing Clark's emotional state, his anger, his grief, some quiet pages, you know? Uh, and even the epi- the issue, the episode, I always want to call them episodes, the issue where uh, Lois does leave to go be that foreign, foreign correspondent and Clark shows up at the airport to see her off and they have this like silent goodbye. And the, f- the last page is totally silent and you just see Clark walking away as she's getting on the plane and some really beautiful moments. Like they spent the time on that and- as much as, yeah, for, for us now as, as married fathers and, you know, sort of wanting to dig into that even more, it's like, oh, like, why did we have to spend those pages with him fighting Barrage or whatever that villain was? <laughs> but at the same time, it's like, man, I'm, I am appreciative that they even did as much, as much as they did. It's kind of, it's actually pretty incredible. Yeah. The moment that you, that you just referenced, I think is, is a great place for me to say how much. I really enjoyed the Dan Jurgens, Ron Friends issues of Superman. Um, obviously, you know Jurgens himself is no longer drawing the title as well as writing it, uh, but Friends is an absolutely masterful partner for Jurgens' writing. The two, what the two of them are doing together, was far and away I thought the, the best sort of pairing of writer and artist, um, and. I don't know that another team could have pulled that off as well. Um, and not, and believe me, not to, not to denigrate any of the other artists in here, but there's just something, something magical about the two of them uh, working on, on the title. Um, I, I agree with you to a point about how much real estate they give the relationship. And like I said, that's my favorite part. They do of course run into that, problem where because it's a weekly series and it's not a guarantee that every reader is reading every title week to week where there is a lot of repetition where some of Clark's inner thoughts and and mostly Clark but Lois to some extent too what he thinks in one issue is almost identical to what he's thinking in another issue and I don't know whether that's just you know feeling the need to you know 
say it again because you're not sure that the reader read the previous issue or whether it's because you just want to make sure they understand. Again, you know, oftentimes superhero comics skew towards younger readers and they just want to make sure they understand, especially these are, these are adult relationships. And so if you're an eight-year-old or a 12-year-old, you know, you may not have a point of reference for what it means to, you know, be engaged and, and, and have an adult relationship. So I'm not sure exactly where it came from. Maybe it's sort of everything at once, but at a certain point it did, it did occur to me that I, I wanted it to just move forward a little bit. I wanted there to be a little bit more momentum on, on where these thoughts go and, and, and not just, not just movement forward, but movement inward, because these ideas, these thoughts can get deep um, where I think they succeeded were in two places where they found ways to parallel the Lois and Clark relationship. And one of them is when Lex Luthor gets married in this, in this room. Um, it's the, he gets the secret wedding on a yacht. And, um, and so to see, to see him getting married and not to say that that wedding is, is all on the up and up there. Everyone's got an ulterior motive in there, but, but to watch him get married and to see how that flusters Superman, like if someone wa- someone's willing to marry the worst guy on on earth, but I can't hold on to my, you know, my lover. It, it, it really frustrates him. Um, and so, in a negative way, I thought that was a really cool wrinkle for Clark to sort of compare himself to. And in a positive way, when he is um, when he is battling a tornado back in Smallville, Jay Garrick, Flash, guest stars and helps him. And Jay Garrick, I thought, was such an inspired choice because he's sort of one of the most famous, older, established, married superheroes in any superhero universe. And so, you know, his his and Jones' relationship is sort of famously stable. And, and to have him be the guy, you know, to help him and to talk to him about relationships and what it means to, you know, be in it for the long haul. And I thought that was a really inspired choice. I would have liked, frankly, to see a little bit more of those kinds of things to help us understand what Clark is actually going I, I can't disagree with any of that. And I, I love hearing you lay all of that out. And first, I, I just to jump back for a second, I agree with you reading the, the Jurgens and Friends issues. I always felt, I think then and now, like I was, it's not the right word, but like I was reading the main book, mm-hmm. right? And I also, I guess I had forgotten how indelible the, that Friends style really was you know, because when I think back to a lot of these issues in my mind, I'm just sort of thinking like Jergens, 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 but it's like, no, like there are so many of those Ron Friends images that have stuck in my mind. So yeah, I love Friends and I love the two of them together. Yeah. Like that's the thing with the Triangle Era. You know, it kind of cuts both ways because you have this weekly adventure and truly weekly now, because we have Man of Tomorrow, we have this quarterly title. So there's not a week of the year where you're not getting a Superman book. And I agree with you. I think it probably really comes down to, you know, not taking for granted that everyone's reading all the titles. And also to, you know, we consume everything so differently now. And so, you know, even if you were, even if you were getting all of the books, I mean, a week is not an eternity, but maybe you didn't remember all of the beats or whatever. Maybe too, it was, I mean, I don't know that, I don't know how much it was this, but giving each creative team an opportunity to mine that territory right so it's not like oh no we already showed that clark is angry you can't touch on that this week right or this month uh but yeah it it cuts both ways because then you do get a lot of repetition and 
with the repetition, sometimes it can really create a powerful effect where you can see like, okay, man, like this is really building, but other times it can get a little tiresome. One instance where I thought it worked well was, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get to this, but you know, Perry White is diagnosed with lung cancer, very powerful arc for him in this. And, yes. you know, I love that we got to spend time with him and see more of his home life. Uh, but Clark takes over as acting manager at managing editor of the, of the planet. And it's not an easy job and it cuts into his time as Superman and everyone's coming at him and he's kind of losing it. And, you know, he's already lost Lois. Now he's got this very busy job. He doesn't have as much time to be Superman. And then we get to the final night portion of the proceedings where he loses his powers. In one of those issues, he even says, like, I feel like I've lost everything. And so, like, that's an instance where I feel like it has sort of this compounding effect where you, like, see, like, oh, man, like, he's really going through something. But I agree. There are plenty of other instances. I mean, it <laughs> going back to the beginning stretch of what we read, I feel like it takes him a little too long to realize that Lois has broken off the engagement, right? Like they have this fight. She leaves in the ring and he's like, what does this mean? A part of me is like, almost wish he called up Batman and Batman was like, listen, buddy, uh, you got, <laughs> you got to piece this together. So yeah, I, I, I can appreciate what you're saying. <laughs> I, I don't think he needed the world's greatest detective to figure out what that meant. But he, you know, he lingers in that moment, not just on what does this mean, but he lingers on this idea that she broke up with him because of his relationship with Lori Lamaris. And it's, it's very, very clear. And Lois says it directly to him multiple times that she's breaking it off because he can't give her what she needs, that, that he's because of his dual existence. Um, he, he just, he can't be there. For, I mean, there are so many times where they're trying to have a conversation, they're out on a date, they're, and he has to disappear. And she understands why. I mean, she doesn't, it's not that she begrudges him being Superman. It's just that she doesn't want to be the one left behind, especially because she's such a strong, independent woman herself. Like she doesn't want to just be Mrs. Superman and sublimate her entire you know, her strength and her intelligence and her fear fearlessness. Like she doesn't want to do that, which I, which I get. Um, but again, like he keeps thinking for several issues that it's because of Lori and Lori is very sexual and, and she does come on to him and she's sort of hanging around. She's like living in the apartment and, you know, she, but she makes it very clear. It has nothing to to do with that. And he keeps trying to like mansplain her own feelings to her and tell her why he thinks she's breaking up with him. And she tries to correct him. I, I don't think either one of them really ends up looking all that good or smart in this case. Like Clark doesn't get it, but also Lois like kind of knew what she was in for and only now has an issue with it because something happened right before this, this run began where he, should have saved her, but didn't. And which I didn't read because it happens before, but they mentioned it enough times that I kind of, I kind of picked up on it. And so again, like I just found myself not having a ton of sympathy for either one. Like I was sad that they broke up because they're such an institution, but I was really trying to understand each one's position and they weren't understanding each other. And then I was like the third wheel. that was really uh, uh, frustrated. <laughs> I hear you. Yeah. And so one one of the catalysts for this was, and we talked about this a couple episodes ago, this Joker issue where Joker poisons Lois. And essentially Clark Superman has this choice, kill Joker to save Lois. And he chooses not to. 
And it ends up being a bluff on Joker's part and Lois lives. And when she wakes up, Clark, Clark's like, you know, I, I could have killed Joker to, to save you, but I knew you wouldn't want me to do that. And Lois is like, okay. <laughs> and, you know, like that definitely causes some tension. And the Lori part of it, you know, you know, Lois catches, you know, Lori kiss Clark while they're flying and, you know, he never tells her about it. And I don't think that's ever actually addressed in any of the issues, which... I feel like that was a missed opportunity. But anyway, mm. so, you know, the Joker of it all, the Laurie of it all, you know, those were definitely there. But yeah, to the to the the writers and artists credit, uh, it was never reduced to that. Right. It, it, there clearly was, like you said, this underlying big picture problem where Superman was getting in the way. He couldn't like you said, he couldn't be there for her in the way she wanted. And she feels like she's losing her individuality. Right. There was this sense of independence that that she's lost. She's been relegated to this position of sort of waiting around when he is off in battle, when he was killed, when he was taken for his trial. And, and, you know, she's lost a part of herself. So it's funny because I, I shared your frustration where, you know, they just like, we're not on the same page, but, but I don't know. It, it, it did ring kind of true because I feel like my wife and I have had like arguments where, not about another woman, like not like this specific thing, but like where maybe I've, or one of us is focused more on, on like the, the, the very specific, like, like this particular thing. And the other one is like addressing a larger idea or item. So that part of it actually did kind of ring true. Um, the other thing that's like, that, that I guess I, I keep coming back to is we talked about this uh, because when you when we did Christ, uh, Crisis Till Death, um, one of the arcs we we dealt with was the lead up to their engagement, and we talked about this at the time where I really felt, and I think you agree, like the we got to the engagement real fast. The road from in, from dating to engagement was, was a very short one. You made the great point that even though in terms of post crisis timing and continuity, you know, it's, it's not a long time, but in the grand scheme of Superman history, it's been decades. And your that point really resonated with me. And I'm like, okay, like, I, I guess I can sort of get past that because, you know, it, this has been going on for so long. But I think sort of the upshot to that is when it comes to their relationship, especially at this point in the story, I think it's fair to say, like, there's not a ton of meat on the bone here. So I think when because like yourself, there were times where it's like, oh, I wish we could get a little bit deeper here, but I don't know that there was that much more there. I mean, look, they could have, you know, they could have done something, but I don't know that they had a ton to work with because I don't know that we had ever really had that many stories that really, like really dug into their relationship issues. So I think that might've been why, you know, we sort of ended where we did. And it did at times feel like we were going around in circles here and I think that's in part because of the triangle era format, but I think also it's like, that's, I don't know, like that's what they had to work with. Well, I mean, I, listen, I think that's a totally fair point. I, you know, I don't know. I, yes. Maybe there wasn't a, a place to go that was much deeper than this. Certainly not that was available or you know, for whatever reason uh, for them. I mean, 
But I have to, I have to assume these are really talented writers and, and we've seen them do incredible work. And the fact that they had, you know, yes, the, the, the writing staff here and the editors are, are primarily men, but you have a very capable female writer in Louise Simonson, who certainly would be able to offer the female perspective. I know there were female editors at DC, including the, the woman at the top, Jeanette Kahn, who was sort of running the place at the time. Like, I have to imagine that if, you know, in one of these sort of Superman summits that I know that they had every couple of months, every year, um, they probably could have found other ways to to dig a little bit. Or at what what to me, what superhero stories are really good at is hyperbolizing conflicts that we have in our everyday lives, right? So to take you know a, 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 a thought, an idea, a conflict that we have as human beings and to create a villain, a monster, a, nat a natural disaster, a some sort of huge conflict that can be punched into submission. That is a sort of mirror for like a, you know, a large scale mirror for that conflict. And so to see some of the physical conflicts that we see in this, um, in this run, be sort of, as you said, like throw away sort of monsters and creatures and creations that ultimately go nowhere um, instead of trying to come up with conflicts for Lois and or Clark and or Superman, right? I mean, any of them really were that somehow bring out some emotion, core emotion that's already there or that parallels it or that you know, that, that plays on it. I mean, the obsession character kind of, to some extent, I think is trying to do that. The fact that it was a love interest for Jimmy who kind of threw him aside because she was really, you know, in love with Superman and, and sort of made that her thing. It doesn't, I don't know if it quite gets there, but it's, I think it was trying. And like I said, I think that, you know, having Lex Luthor get married is certainly a step in the right direction. I don't know that it went far enough, but I, I certainly think that that, would have worked. Um, I just, I think there was a way to do it. Um, I, 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 writers more talented than I probably could have figured it out, but I, I just know there is. No, that's fair. I mean, I feel like we got the closest in that, that little parasite storyline where parasite, it takes out the the power grid at Star Labs, and you know he's trying to. This is the version of is Doc Parasite, where Parasite has absorbed the Star Lab scientist, and now they've teamed up essentially. Uh, so we have you know the the powers of Parasite and the body of Parasite, but with the added intelligence of this Doctor Freeman, he breaks into Star Labs to steal the files relating to himself, and all these monsters are are unleashed. But in the conclusion of that storyline, Lois works with the SCU to devise a trap for Parasite. And Superman interferes, right? Trying to be, trying to protect Lois. And I, I think this, this it hope maybe is an example of what you're talking about, where it brings out the issues where, you know, it was a great moment where he's like, I thought you were in danger. And she's like, didn't you see all the SCU people like waiting to take mm -hmm. Parasite? What are you doing? And so, again, tying into this idea of her losing her sense of self because he's always there to protect her. So I think that that was an instance where maybe it worked. I, I agree. I think especially given, I think throwaway is, I think you had said, I think it's an appropriate <laughs> designation here. Some of the more throwaway villains slash plots of these issues uh, where, you know, maybe we could have had, yeah. 
we, you know, we could have had stories that, that brought out some of these things a little bit more. Yeah. I, 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 I can't disagree with that. So I get what you're saying. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the story you just brought up, I, I agree with you. I think that that probably was one of those attempts because Lois does have a moment or rather Clark has a moment where he's just like, I thought you, I thought you wanted me to save, him, right? I screwed up with the Joker and now I thought this was what you wanted. And she realizes it's not like, I don't want to be the damsel in distress. I don't want to always be the person you have to save. And I need to kind of be my own person. So, so that brought out a part of the relationship. And I think now that I reflect on it, you know, those couple of issues, and you know, I, I don't always love a, a Mixius Pedelec appearance, but the couple of issues where Mixius Pedelec basically gives everybody in Metropolis a winning lottery ticket and everybody gets sort of exactly what they wanted. And he sort of offers the same thing to, to Clark, you know, I, you want Lois Lane to be your wife and you can have that. You just have to say, this is what I was, these are the classics of the genie from the lamp who says like, you could have the thing that you wish. And, and there is a moment where, where Clark considers it. Um, but he knows that that would be, you know, completely undermining Lois's agency as a human being. And, you know, she wouldn't have any choice in the matter. And that's not how he wants this relationship to be. He wants it to be an equal partnership and, and ultimately shows a nobility in him that, that, you know, we need, but he's not thrilled about it afterwards. Like he really, not that he regrets it, but he certainly has, you know, second thoughts because it would have been nice. So I, you know, there are these, there are moments, um, I wish it hadn't been with Nick Spitalik because it's not, he's not always my favorite. Although I did like the Scrooge McDuck homage cover where he's diving into the the money bin. That was kind of cute. Um, but I don't know. I just, I, I always, and this is me also coming at it from a 2022 sensibility. Like this is me, you know, wanting my comics to be a little bit more representational, a little bit deeper, a little bit more, um, uh, sort of cutting cutting to the core of humanity a little bit more and 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 maybe that's unfair of me to try to impose that on a comic from the mid 90s it's <laughs> i got to tell you man it's so funny to me because i feel like you i feel like we've switched places i feel like you sound the way i often do on these episodes and i i guess i am sort of grading them on a little bit of a curve right for all the reasons that we've said and i'm just I guess I just look at it as like, I can't believe they did as much as they did. And I, I, yes. And that's the thing. I don't, I don't disagree with you. I wish they could have done more, but I guess I'm just so impressed that they even got as far as they did. So, uh, but it's so, it's so funny, but you know, it always come at this from different perspectives. So it's, it's, uh, you know, it it makes it interesting. Um, I loved, I think what also rang true for me was, you know, neither, neither, Clark nor Lois is completely right or wrong here. And I think that's an important part of this. And I definitely felt, I felt where Lois was coming from. And I want to circle back to that in a second. And I also feel where Clark is coming from. And, you know, Clark's whole thing about, and this comes up multiple instances of like, hey, this is why I revealed my secret to you before we got married. You knew what you were getting into. What has changed here? I've been Superman this whole time. What what is the problem? And you know, you you can definitely appreciate that. Now, of course, on the on the other side, and certainly again as an adult with a, a, a you know <laughs> more of a perspective now, it's like yeah, well, sometimes things change. Sometimes you didn't totally realize exactly what you signed up for, and that's valid. Like Lois's response in this, right, as she's getting more entrenched in his life, and also keep in mind, and I think this is kind of an, a, a funny reflection of you know what was going on in the comics because 
the period around their courtship and engagement versus, uh, you know, death forward, very different. Right. I mean, there's always some shenanigans going on, you know, we, the time and time again storyline, you know, lost in time. You know, there have been other instances where she's been sitting at home waiting for him. But, you know, not to this extent where he's he's killed. He's, you know, on trial in outer space. He's gone for so long. So, you know, for Lois to sort of have a moment of well, I'm I don't know if this is if this still works for me, even if I agree to it previously, I can change my mind. That conflict, I think, really rang true, and and I and I liked the way that, you know, that played out. Um, so that you know that piece of it in particular, uh, you know, I thought was good. And then this is what I, I wanted to circle back to, and I wanted to to ask you because, especially from the lowest piece of it, this idea that Superman's in the way that he can't, he he can't be with her and serve humanity. This ties into one of the central themes of Superman too. Right, especially if we're looking at the Donner cut, right, where it's mm-hmm. not that he gives up his powers so that he can be intimate; it's that he gives up his powers because he he cannot, according to Jor-El, like philosophically, fundamentally, he cannot be both. He can't be this lover and Superman. It's it's this tough to wrestle with this because we've seen so many instances. I mean, from wedding forward in the comics, except the New Fifty Two, right? But from wedding mm-hmm. forward in the comics, where they're, they're married, they're together, they make it work. Uh, the later years of Smallville, same, same type of thing. And they wrestle with the issues, but ultimately they, they make it work. Uh, the Snyder movies show them in a relationship while he's also Superman. We've seen Superman and Lois, probably the best example, where not only are they together and married, they have children. Mm-hmm. So we've seen all of these instances in the modern era where they are able to make it work. Yet, if, if, I mean, if we're really trying to treat this as realistically as possible, it's like, yeah, what the hell would it be like to be in a relationship with Superman? You know, he makes the argument to her, well, what if I were a doctor on call? I mean, I'm not a doctor on call and I've not been, you know, in, in a relationship with someone who is. But as demanding as that is, it's still not 24-7, 365, the universe, right? <laughs> so, and this is what I want to ask you. I mean, the regardless of frustrations of, you know, how it played out or the circles that we went in, I mean, did you, do you ultimately buy into this, into this conflict? Do you think, do you think other stories, as much as we love them, maybe gloss over this or don't, don't fully acknowledge how truly difficult this would be? Uh, Yeah. So before I even address that, I have to say, I prefer stories with the two of them together. I like, I love, I just love the relationship. I always have. Um, and that's also because of, for most of my life, they've been together. Um, so it's just, it's sort of what I know, which is why, you know, the, the decision to not have them be together when the New 52 started, and I read all of it. I mean, I was reading everything up until then. I read the New 52 and I've been reading everything after. So um, for me, that was a little jarring, but also at the same time, it was a little bit exciting because, because it was all I knew and because I'd been reading comics for so long and you do see the cycles and the repetitions of, you know, years and decades and decades of, of reading. Sometimes you want things to shake up just for the sake of shaking up. Um, so I was excited to see where that would go. And, and he subsequently had a, a romantic relationship with Wonder Woman, which was interesting for a period and then ultimately, you know, wasn't anymore. And, and 
when they brought Clark and Lois back with the rebirth to then give them a son to change that relationship to, to say, we're going to bring it back the way it was, but we're going to make it feel new again. I was all on board for all that. That said, I am very conflicted on this. I'm very conflicted on this because on the one hand, yes, I love them together and they probably do gloss over a lot of the, the issues that probably would exist. But for a character like Superman, it doesn't bother me as much because he's always stood for hope. And, and I think the Clark Lois relationship gives us hope that no matter how complicated things get, love, right? The, 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 just the love that they share and the mutual respect that they have will always be there. Um, I think probably the closest the closest analog to the way Lois feels would be, you know, the spouse of like a police officer, a firefighter who, you know, has to go out into danger and you don't know if they're coming home. Uh, you know, every time they're on call, you do not know if they're coming home. Um, and to live with that concern and that fear has to be so incredibly taxing. Um, I think that there's an aspect of the relationship that they sometimes address, but often do not because it's, it really is quite dark. And that's the fact that Clark is just going to live so much longer than Lois. I mean, he is, he is, I don't want to say functionally immortal, but I mean, he's fun, you know, he ages very, very slowly and she is a normal human woman. And so, you know, through, through comic book, you know, retcons and, you know, time shifts and the way it sort of moves, they're able to keep them in their sort of mid thirties all the time. But, um, but the reality is if time were allowed to advance the way that it normally does, she would grow old and she would die and he wouldn't. And that's not, that's not a reality that they really talk about a whole lot. Um, so if you really want to get real with this relationship, you're going to go there, which I don't, and I don't know that you want to, unless it's like a Superman, the end kind of a story. I don't, I don't know that you want to do that. Um, that said, you know, that contrasts then with the kinds of stories that we see here in the nineties, where it's a lot of like sort of treading water and spinning wheels where you've got these, these sort of benchmark endpoints, whether it's death, rebirth, uh, engagement, breakup, wedding where you know you want to get to that point and then hit it. And then you go, well, we'll figure out where it's going to go once we get over that hill. And it's this, this Sisyphusian race as, as creators, I think, to like push that boulder up a hill. And then once you get it up there, you're like, okay, now they're married. Now what? The boulder rolls back down the hill. You're like, we got to build this back up to something more dramatic because if we don't have the relationship drama anymore, right, if they're happily married, where are we going to sort of mine these characters for, for drama? So it, I get like, it's, it's this machine, this really complicated machine that functions in, in, in and of itself in a given time period, but then also has to function as part of a history that's now 85 years old. So to say I'm conflicted is, uh, it's probably an understatement. No, well, well said. Uh, the aging issue is, that's a great point. And that is something that 
I guess it's not often addressed because like there's really no great answer. It's really tough. Hey, Lois and Clark did a whole episode on that though, where there was that villain who was like draining youth and Clark loses some years from his life, but there's still this very real uh, situation where, you know, he will out outlive her. And I know there have been some stories, uh, I, I guess the conclusion of uh, Grant Morrison's uh, DC 1 million, where we see a, you know Lois preserved in, in some fashion or another. So there are ways around, but yeah, I mean, that's a very real, potentially dark uh, aspect that is, that is often not addressed. And let me also say for the record, I, I know regular listeners know, I love Lois and Clark together. I basically skipped the new 52 initially because I was so <laughs> upset that that was undone. Uh, but I guess I, I just look at this, at this stretch here and you know, in the end, it's not really even that long, you know, like these issues that we're talking about 37 issues, but that's including the wedding and the honeymoon and stuff. It's not really that many, but I guess I'm glad that this, this was at least mined, uh, for, to the extent that they were able to. Um, and I also, like, I wonder this, this whole business about, um, you know, Superman being in the way. I, I don't know how others, and, and particularly someone coming from at coming at this from the, the female perspective, like, I, I don't know how Lois comes across in this. Like, I, I, I find it sympathetic and relatable, and it's like, of course, this must be so challenging. But yeah, I, I don't know if, I don't know how this plays or how this would play today, um, you know, especially someone from the female perspective. So like, please reach out and you know, let me know, you know, what, what you think, because I guess it, it just does feel a little bit, a little cliche or reductive, like this is the problem, right? That, you know, it's, it's Clark's always pulled away when they're trying to have a conversation. I, but, but at the same time, it's, it still does ring true and it feels real. So, so I, I don't know. I, I don't have a good answer on that one, but just something I was thinking about. I mean, I think if you took the same bones of the story um, and presented it today, you know, comic book writing has evolved to such an extent. And, and I know you haven't gotten there yet, but like, you know, someone like a Greg Rucka who wrote the the twelve issue Lois Lane Enemy of the People, Enemy of the State, Enemy of the People, I think it was called, um, series, which is just phenomenal. Like, if we got that style of writing with that version of Lois, this story it becomes something far deeper and and I think far realer than it is presented here. There is a style in the nineties, for good or ill. I listen, you know, I, I, I've always been a proponent that. Your favorite comics are the ones that hit you at the right age, at the right time in your life. You know, I started reading not long before this. I just wasn't reading Superman comics. So like 90s X-Men is my gateway drug and that gets shit on a lot too. Um, and, and to some extent, rightfully so. But at the end of the day, I go back and I read those issues and I'm like, nope, still my jam. Like I still love it. It is my happy place and I'll go back to it any, any day of the week. So, you know, it's hard for me to then sit here in 2022, having read these issues for the first time really, and try to impose my sensibilities on it. Now it's, it's, it's not fair in a lot of ways, but I think if we were to get it today, it would be presented differently and, and we'd have to consider it differently. And, and, um, and then, you know, to go back to your observation that this was 37 issues, I, I would even say it's really 30 because there was a four-parter and a three-parter that were in the middle of this that really didn't capitalize on anything that was going on. If there was a brief mention of the fact that they were split up, I think it was only just to, to make sure that people knew it was in continuity, but there was a um, an identity crisis, not to be confused with the Brad Meltzer, Rags Morales 2007 series. Um, this identity crisis thing where the Milton Fine Brainiac 
comes back and there's a kid involved, which to me was just a, just a mess. Um, and then there was another bottle city, uh, three-parter that I also just, I, I kept found myself just waiting to get through those issues so I could get back to the main <laughs> story. I, I really, I, I had a really hard time with those and partly because it, it look, they eschewed the regular writers and the regular art team. Um, these were entirely written and drawn by other other people, and so they just felt like they didn't fit. And this story was sort of outside of what we were doing. I don't know. I just I had a tough time with it. I, I don't know if you did too. So well, so a couple of things. Um, number one, I do just want to reiterate a point that was made by uh, Joe a couple of episodes ago, and we got to the point of the breakup sort of teeing up this conversation that we're having now, because he made a great point uh, that I'd love to just take and pass off as my own, but credit where credit's due. Um, you know, we've, at this point in the triangle era now, we've gone through so many stories where Superman is tested physically in a, in a variety of ways, including death and resurrection. Yeah. So the fact that, you know, we're now putting him through his paces more emotionally I really do appreciate, uh, and, and, I, and I think that it was a great change of pace, and it allowed us to, like I said earlier, right, get back to more of, of the heart of all of this. And, you know, an issue, I, I thought of you, because we talked about this when we did Crisis Till Death, but there was that, that issue years ago in Superman by Dan Jurgens, where Lois and Clark have that heart-to-heart in, in the mountains, right? And they, they really yeah. come together in that moment. And yeah. then we get a, a great counterpoint follow-up to that here, where you know, Clark tries to recreate that, but he gets called away to save this, you know, manned mission to Mars. And it just further like drives that nail in the coffin of their relationship. So I really like that callback and it's so fitting that you're here because, you know, we talked about this the first time. So stuff like that uh, was great. The arcs that you're talking about, the bottled city one, I, I could double check. I think that was by the regular teams, but Identity Crisis was definitely uh, not. And that was actually written by uh, Mark Wade and, um, and, and Tom Pyre. Uh, yeah, Bottle City was the regular creative teams. Was it? Okay. Uh, but we'll get back to that in a second. The yeah. Identity Crisis, yeah, where Brainiac takes over Superman's body and places Superman's mind in this kid's body. I, I will confess, I did for time, I, I did to just kind of skim that real quick. But I remember that. You know, it's so funny for all of these. It's that fill-in arc. <laughs> it's a credit yeah. to Mark Wade and, and Tom Pyre. I remember that one uh, as a kid. Uh, but yeah, that one I did skip because I knew that wasn't, you know, uh, you know, really part of that main ongoing storyline. Um, well, I envy you for having <laughs> <laughs> But the the Bottled City arc, all right, this ties into uh, a gripe that I've had with post-crisis Superman. I, I We neglected to mention this a couple episodes ago when we talked about the trial arc, but during that trial storyline, we meet the post-crisis version of the bottled city uh, in the possession of this, this supernatural being called Tolos. We'll go with that yeah, pronunciation. Yep. Yeah. Where essentially he has miniaturized all of the inhabitants of this of this bottled city and he can enlarge and possess them as he desires. So it's not a Kryptonian city that was preserved. It's sort of, again, this, this city that's inhabited by, they even put a number on it at some point. It's like 300,000 uh, beings that he's collected. And we meet them briefly in, in the trial arc and then we get 
what you're referencing here, this three-part storyline where Tolos comes back to Metropolis and is, again, is still, he has his sights set on Superman. He wants Superman at his disposal. And there's a Daxamite in the Bottle City who he possesses, who ultimately succumbs to uh, lead poisoning, but is able to help Superman defeat Tolos before that happens. And then Superman entrusts the Bottle City to uh, to Emil Hamilton, who takes it to the mm -hmm. fortress. There's a whole... Uh, you know, atmosphere issue where they're, uh, they're in danger and Emil is able to uh, stabilize everything. Anyway, my gripe is something that I've said before on the show. So forgive me for, uh, for belaboring the point, but post-crisis, right? This idea that Superman is the sole surviving Kryptonian. Great. But so what's the upshot of that? Well, you know, no Zod, no Supergirl, no Crypto, uh, no Kandorians. Okay, fine. Except that's not the case, right? Because we get versions of all of those characters and concepts. And I'll focus specifically here on the bottled city. And I guess, like yourself with the, the breakup, I guess I'm somewhat conflicted because part of me feels like, hey, kudos for finding a workaround, right? You can't have the Kryptonian city, but you want a bottled city. So what can we do? So part of me feels like, hey, right on. You figured it out. But at the same time, it's just like, what, what are we doing? Because if, if all of these things are off limits, but you can just find ways around it to, pre to present arguably lesser versions. And look, I'm sure the Linda Danvers Matrix version of Supergirl has, has her fans. I, I don't want to knock that. I, I was a fan of that series. I didn't read all of it, but we'll get to it on the podcast down the line. So I, I, I get it. But at the same time, it's just like, it feels like it defeats the purpose. Like, what what are we doing here? I, I mean, how do you feel about this? Well, and didn't at the end of the storyline, didn't they name the city Candor? Didn't they reveal that the, it's called Candor? And so, uh, you know, f I was looking at this like so. So we have a bottle city of Candor, right? This is the sort of long-standing um, element of Superman mythology, you know, going all the way back to pre-crisis days. So. It's called that. It essentially is that, but not quite. So, yeah, I mean, I think there is. I think there is probably an element of the goal of the post-crisis Superman books that was intended to sort of repopulate the mythology with the stuff we had getting rid of the things we really didn't like, changing the things that could have worked better and keeping the things that were already working. So when you look at Burns Superman and, and sort of everything leading up till now, there are echoes of pre-crisis. And then there are things that are wildly different and certainly new, new elements. And then there are things that are like, familiar-ish. Your Supergirl example, I think, is a perfect one. You know, the fact that we get Lex Luthor the second, you know, this other sort of, which he wasn't at first, but sort of morphed into and then wasn't anymore. Um, and then, you know, but this Bottle City of Candor being another example of it, where like, yeah, I, I remember that, but this is a, a different form of that. And, and I guess your mileage may vary as to how well each individual thing works like you said it, it, i'm sure there are people for whom this supergirl this matrix is their supergirl because that's when they started reading and and they don't 
They don't want this Cara Danvers character. They don't want Cara Zor-El. They don't, they don't care about that. That's not their Supergirl because that's not the one they grew up with. And, and there is a validity to it. And that's ultimately, I think, why comic books like this go through cycles because you, you want to recreate it brand new for, for a new generation of, of readers. But in doing so, like you're going to potentially piss off longer term readers. And it's probably to our discredit, those long-term readers, that we allow ourselves to get so upset rather than recognizing the the sort of ebbs and flows of serialized storytelling over decades and decades. It's why why I've been reading less and less uh, in the superhero genre because I'm so now, I, I so recognize those repetitions that I keep seeing the things I remember over and over and over again. And so nothing really feels new. And that's not, that's not really the fault of the creators. That's my fault for being 44 years old and having been reading since I was 12. Um, Every now and again, something comes along that's, you know, a new take on an old character or concept. But for the most part, you want to get new readers in. Well, there's tried and true storylines and characters that just work. So you bring them in any way you have to. And I'm okay with that. I'm really okay with that. Um, but I think this is this is one of those places where it happened. And yes, it frustrated me in the moment because I just didn't feel like it contributed much to the overall story. Um, but, I, you know, I, I let it go. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because, you know, one of the things I was thinking about and then what you said sparked, sparked this even further – because I was going to say, you know, maybe there's a reason why the Matrix version of Supergirl isn't around today and why this version of the Bottled City isn't around today. But is it that they're not here because the ideas weren't strong enough or is it because longtime readers, including ourselves, were were not open enough to it? Or or on the other hand, is it that the the original like fundamental versions of these concepts and characters are just so effective, so compelling that just inherently we always cycle back to them. I mean, maybe somewhat of a mixture, I, I guess, you know, like again, looking at, at all these examples that we're talking about, I think they're very creative, you know, especially what became of the matrix Supergirl, starting with this protoplasmic being who ends up merging with this dying human and ultimately forming an earthborn angel uh, even this bottle city business, it's a different take. This idea of, you know, they've been abducted and, and, and they're possessed, you know, that put, that adds this supernatural, uh, bent to it. So I think they're perfectly good ideas in and of themselves. Yeah. I guess, I guess my frustration is just like, what, what, I don't know. How do I put this just internally at DC? It's like, what freaking game were you playing here? Where it's like, all this stuff is off limits, but uh, okay. You can sort of like do a version of it. I, and, and in a, in in a certain sense, I I and this is subjective, but a lesser version because you're losing fundamental aspects, right? The reason why I would argue like Karazorel or Kara, however you <laughs> Karazorel is compelling, or Candor is compelling, or Zod is compelling, is that personal familial connection. And in all of these instances, when you give a Zod from a pocket universe. When you give us a protoplasmic Supergirl, when you give us a random assortment of people in the bottle, you're you're just cutting off the personal component that 
that is such an indelible part of those concepts. So I, I keep butting up against that. And I know, look, it's not too long after this stretch that we're reading. I mean, over, you know, within a few years, we would get the post-crisis introduction of Kara Zor-El. So, you know, we returned to all of these things and the bottle city and, 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 and the, the, the true version of Zod, like all of those things would come back. But I guess just during this period, it's just, I don't know. It just strikes me as, as odd that they, I don't know, had this rule, but then we're okay with these exceptions to it. I don't know. I, it's hard for me to really reconcile. Well, I'm not surprised that, that you're struggling with it because you have always said, and, and I agree wholeheartedly that, you know, your argument for those people who say that, you know, Superman's too difficult a character to write compelling stories for because he can do anything, right? His power set makes him so powerful that there's, there's no conflict that could possibly create drama. And your argument has always been, it's, it's not always the physical conflict that is the most compelling it's the emotional conflict when he's punching something that he has an emotional attachment to or that there's a something pulling at him from two different directions that that's that's what makes the story work and so for you to take these elements and take the emotional component out to take the the personal conflict out so that really he's just sort of punching something to punch it because it's just a threat a generic threat yeah, I understand why those stories, those stories are not as compelling as Superman stories have potential to be. Um, I also think it's probably at this point, we've been, like we've been reading and talking about these things long enough that we're probably foolhardy to think that that anything is at this point off limits. Because the truth is, if the right creative team came along at the right time to tell the right story with the right character and concept, any editor would be an idiot to not allow them to do that. So if some superstar writer who has name recognition with a superstar artist paired with them who has name recognition was brought onto a book like Superman with name recognition, I mean, worldwide name recognition and said, I have this phenomenal idea to bring back the Matrix Supergirl. And if the idea was really strong enough, I guarantee you it would be Greenland. I guarantee you. I mean, look, how many for how many years did we say Bucky would always stay dead? Captain America sidekick Bucky was killed in World War II, would, would, would always stay dead because it's more compelling for Captain America to live with the guilt that he let his teenage sidekick die in a plane explosion. And then in 2010, Ed Brubaker comes along with Steve Epting and goes, I got this idea. I got this idea for bringing, and, and Marvel rightfully said, you know what? If it was ever going to work, it's going to work with this Winter Soldier idea. And he's become one of the most popular characters, not just in the comics, but on screen as well. And so I, I think that we, I, I think we have an obligation, again, to recognize these sort of patterns of, of how these characters and concepts flow over, over long periods of time. Nothing is really off limits. I think what they probably meant when they rebooted it was we don't want to just tell the same story over again in the same way, right? At that point, you are 40 plus years into Superman's existence. He, you know, had gone through the gold and silver, bronze, and, and this sort of modern 80s age with so many stories by so many creators needed just a sort of fresh coat of paint. 
And whether Ma and Pa Kent are alive or dead, whether Lana Lang is an issue, whether Lois is a thing, Lex Luthor is a businessman or a mad scientist, uh, you know, Superman is still Superman. He's got enough of those recognizable elements that I think you and I have agreed he most of the time has. And occasionally, you know, there's a take on it that we recognize uh, isn't recognizable enough. Um, but I think if, if the right if the right factors come together and you get that sort of lightning in a bottle or what you perceive to be lightning in a bottle, because let's face it, sometimes you give the green light and you really shouldn't have, and you know, you, you, you make the mistake. I, I just think, I just think we, we probably, I know I entered this discussion by being a little bit critical, but now I'm sort of walking myself back and saying that maybe we should be a little bit more forgiving. You know, fair enough. And I look, I what I can appreciate is that if there were these edicts in place that Kal-El is a sole surviving Kryptonian, but that there was a desire on the part of the creators or well, maybe even higher up at D. I don't know. I mean, maybe they were given marching orders like, hey, to a version of the bottle city. Like, I don't know what went on behind the scenes. But regardless, the fact that they were able to come up with with, with what they did within the confines that they had, you know, kudos to them. Uh, I, again, I think any issues I have stem more from the uh, the, the the upper brass at DC more so than than these creators. I, again, I, I admire the work that they did. I want to I want to sort of do a rundown of what was going on with the supporting cast in the stretch that we read, but just to button up. No, well, not button up because I know we'll continue talking about the relationship. But a, a couple of points I wanted to make about the the Lois and Clark breakup. I said before, I love, there were a number of scenes and a few issues that really showed us the inner turmoil that Clark was experiencing. And in one of the early issues, we had the return of Jeb Effen Friedman, uh, who sadly lost his life. And uh, there's a subsequent issue where uh, Superman and Laurie are trying to, and ultimately do find his body in the, in the ocean. And you know, uh, Clark and Laurie are having this telepathic conversation. And this is really where he's like letting out a lot of this frustration. And he even says about Lois, he's like, what did she, like, what does she want from me? Like, I'm just one man. Like, can I be angry like a man? Like he, you know, and, and again, that very relatable. And he, he takes the engagement ring and, and throws it, at, you know, a la what, what we saw on Lois and Clark, uh, the new adventures of Superman. And, you know, of course he comes to his senses and this was the ring that Jonathan had given Martha that she then gave to him to give to Lois. And so of course he reclaims it in very dramatic moment where he's, you know, you don't know if he's going to make it in time to catch the ring and he catches it. But there was that. And then later uh, when he visits Smallville, we get that stretch of issues where uh, he has to contend with the twisters. But at the beginning of that, he goes to the farm to tell, uh, you know, Jonathan and Martha what's been going on. He's like pounding on the, uh, on the new house that's being built because it was destroyed by conduit. Uh, there's another issue by Jerkins and friends where uh, he's out in the woods and, and again, he's just, he's just pounding away. So a bunch of issues. Then another instance later on, we talked about the issue where he sees Lois off for her new foreign correspondent gig. And there's another scene when he's in Perry's office, when he's acting uh, editor, where just a very, you know, just like head in his hands and, and just like really kind of broken moment. Um, like I said, I just appreciated that we had all of those instances and you got to see him. Like, I think this was a good example of show don't tell, right? For for everything that we were talking about, like issue after issue of sort of, you know, being told what the problems were between them. But there were a lot of these moments and a lot of these moments where the art really drove a lot of it. Uh, and, and I really appreciated uh, those moments in particular really stood out to me. Yeah. And, and almost all of them were Ron Friends. 
Um, so, I mean, that, and that's a combination of, you know, Dan Jurgens knowing enough to not put dialogue in, or, or thought balloons or, or narration in, in a scene and just let the art tell the story. And that's, and that's probably because he himself is an artist as well. So, you know, he, he understands that give and take of not covering up beautiful art with a lot of balloons, but, but, you know, knowing that Ron Friends is more than capable of, of doing it. We didn't see it as much from some of the other uh, art teams. Um, it just, it just happened to be a, a feature of, of that particular book, which I really appreciated. And, and probably one of the reasons why that book stood out as, like you said, like, so the main, the main book of, of the run. There are, you know, one of the runners uh, in, in these issues is after Lois and Clark break up and especially after Lois leaves, Lori's hanging around, right? She's taking art classes and she's selling artifacts that she's found <laughs> underwater <laughs> to these museums. And that raises some red flags and uh, that puts her uh, in, in, in the, in the sights of Jimmy Olsen, the new rising star reporter at GBS. And there's that whole business. And this question of, you know, whether Jimmy's losing his integrity, uh, as a person, as a journalist. Uh, but you know, he she, is, he is, he'll come around. <laughs> he'll, you know, he has his arc. It's all right. Uh, he's a dick, but <laughs> he's, you know, he's, uh, he's, he's riding the high of being the star reporter, uh, after, yeah. after toiling away as the cub reporter photographer for so long. It's it's a little tough to see that to see that side of him, but I, I'm I'm okay with it overall. But but with Lori, you know, she's hanging around. She's trying to, you know, uh, you know, take Clark to lunch or cook him dinner. And my two part question for you is: Do you do you wish that they had explored any kind of rekindled romance between Clark and Lori? And my second question is. Because again, it seems so clear that the breakup got chopped off when we knew we had to have a wedding to to tie into the TV show. Do you think that if this had played out longer, and I don't know how long they like wanted to tell this story for, but for argument's sake, like let's say they had a few more months of this, do you think we would have gotten there, or do you think that was like really never? I know you don't, you can't speak for the creators, but just your right, sense, right. like, do you think that was in the cards at all, and would you have wanted it? Uh, so, all right. So there's really two ways I think this could have played out the way that it played out, which is there are these, these moments where you can see she is trying to get his attention romantically. Um, and he is, I think part clueless. He's just, he's just so into his own thing. And like you said, I mean, at this point he's so much on his plate that it would be very difficult, I think, for him to even have a relationship at all, certainly with somebody new, um, or new ish. Um, because it's just too much going on. Um, so he, he largely sort of ignores it because he just doesn't recognize it until it gets to a certain point where he's, it's very clear that she is making a move on him. And I thought that the scene where he lets her down is actually quite, quite nice. He is tactful. He is compassionate, but he's also straightforward with her that, that this is not what he wants this is you know she's a wonderful person but he doesn't have those feelings for her and and this is not going to happen and it just sort of goes away um i think there's a there's a a world where while lois is away the two of them begin something um because in part he's he needs a rebound and and wants wants to feel appreciated and loved and you know, um, I think that 
it's somebody he has a history with, so it makes some sense. Um, who isn't, I wouldn't say uncomplicated, but isn't like crazy complicated. Like she's unattached to anybody else. And, you know, it, it would make some sense. Um, and then Lois comes back, perhaps having had the revelation she has on this, on this mountain um, that, you know, Clark is the one for her and not knowing anything of the relationship comes back and to declare her, you know, her renewed interest. And there are Clark and Lori, you know, deep into a relationship. And, and now, you know, you get some drama out of that. But if you do that, I think someone gets really, really hurt. And I, and I don't think I'd want to see Superman do that. I, I think, and it, and it would be Lori. I, I, I think ultimately they'd have to continue building toward the wedding. And that means that the conversation they have about him not wanting to be in a relationship would be after they've already been in a relationship. And I think that that would be so devastating for Lori, who at that point had committed herself to him that, that it would really paint Clark in, a, in such a negative light. I don't, I don't know how you do that. And have him still be, you know, noble as Superman. I I appreciate your analysis. I the the question that I asked about, you know, do you think this is where they were heading? I just that that issue, the quest of Lois Lane right before the wedding, where we see where where Lois is and the journey that she goes that ultimately leads her back to Metropolis. That's the, that's the issue where we get that scene that you're talking about, where yeah. Clark is going to let you know let Laurie down. And Lori's response in that issue is like, oh, Clark, like I'm a telepath. I know you love Lois. The question is, when are you going to tell her? When are you going to admit that to yourself? That was the part of it that I just don't know. I don't know that that lines up with what we had been seeing from Lori in, in the other issues. Unless, you know, this was really just meant to be a misdirect. Like they just, she was just trying to be there for him. And it, you know, it was meant to play to us as she's trying to be romantic, but she really wasn't. And she really knows who he's meant to be with. And that's that again. I just, my gut is like, that's just not what I, but that could be my own projecting onto this. I don't know. Uh, but in in any event, we get what we get here. You know, at the end of the day, I, I land on the side of, I'm glad they didn't have Clark start back up with Lori for all the reasons that you said, it's hard to come back for that from that for Lois and Clark and Lori gets hurt and, and, and all of that. Um, I guess the only counterpoint that I, I, I come up with is you know, going back to the new 52 as an example, right? As hard as it was right for this fan to not have Lois and Clark together in the new 52, it's like, okay, but now you have an opportunity. So what can you do with it? And I, having recently delved into the new 52, I was pleasantly surprised by how much I liked the Clark and Diana pairing. And it's like, yeah, okay. If you're going to undo this marriage that we've been with for many years now, do do it for a reason, right? Give us something new, explore some new territory. And they did. So I guess part of me feels like, okay, if you're going to break up Lois and Clark, you know, maybe this is an opportunity to explore Clark in a relationship with someone else. But, and for whatever, this came up in the last a couple episodes ago, I have somewhat of a soft spot for Lori. I can't really tell you why. I don't know. Um, so there's a little part of me that's like, oh, I wish we could have like, kind of a little something there, but in the end, I think they probably did the right thing for the bigger picture. It's funny. I read the moment that you cited as her fronting because she was embarrassed. That's probably, yeah, I think that's probably it. That's probably a fair reading. I think, I think she says, Oh, you know, yeah, of course I'm, you know, I'm a telepath. I, 
I knew that that was the truth all along. I was just trying to get you to admit the truth. And I think that she was, I, I think she was really covering for um, the, the letdown, like rather than having to, to face her own feelings uh, with it. That was how I read it. I don't know if that was what it, what was intended or not, but I think that the scene plays better if it reads that way, right? Because otherwise it's, it's almost inexplicable why she would have behaved the way that she behaved. I mean, to me, she was clearly trying to, you know, come on to him, not in any sort of overt way. I mean, she wasn't, you know, standing naked in his apartment or anything like that. I was, but, uh, but, but, you know, like you said, these, these nice gestures just to show that like, I care and I'm here and, and, you know, we already have a relationship and, and just know that I'm here. And I, and I think there's something really genuine and nice about her, which is probably why you like her. She's just a nice person. Yeah, no, I, your point is well taken. But I guess too, then I part of me wishes, I don't know, that maybe, and I know Clark really wasn't in a place to return anything, romantic or otherwise, really. But I guess part of me, because I don't really remember, like once we get into the electric Superman era, what really becomes of Lori, I, I don't remember offhand, but I guess if we had gotten to more of a place of a of a true friendship between them, you know, that would have been fine too. Yeah. I, I don't know. I guess I just wanted like a little something more there. Not necessarily that they have a romance, but, but something. Um, uh, one other just general point that I, I, I want to make, and I, I meant to say this a couple episodes ago when we talked about the introduction of this fifth title, Man of Tomorrow, just a, a side note here. It's great. It's so crazy to think that there was a time where we had five ongoing Superman titles, four monthlies and a quarterly. And at the same time, we also had the Steel series and the Superboy series. It's such a far cry from what we've seen in recent years. I know, you know, as we're heading into 2023, that we have action comics, we have a new Superman series, we have a new John Kent series slash miniseries. There's a little bit more going on now for the first time in a while, but it's just kind of crazy, you know, going back to revisit this period and just just thinking about the the quantity of of the output here compared to what we've seen recently relative to Batman for example where you look at the solicitations and you know 95% of it is Batman and then you get like a <laughs> sprinkling of a few other characters uh, so at least Superman gets a little piece of that but uh, again just one one thing that that stood out to me as I'm as I'm reading through all of these issues and just thinking about like man like there was a lot of Superman a lot of Superman. It's also why, and I think you know, this is this is the boom that precipitated the bust in the '90s. You know, with, with both Marvel and DC. It's, you know, there when you had a flagship character, you you put out pretty much a book a month, and I think Batman was pretty much doing the same thing between Batman, Detective Comics, Legends of the Dark Knight, Shadow of the Bat. I mean, yep. I think he also had. And then there were the you know Secret Files and Origins specials and the annuals, and I mean. There was not a week that went by in the year where I think you didn't get a Superman or a Batman something because they were proven entities and you could slap their name on, on a cover and, and it would sell. Um, that is not the case anymore. It's just not, it, you know, we haven't had that in, in a long time. So, you know, I think that, I think the companies rightfully so have to be a little bit more selective about, you know, what they're putting out and who's on those titles and what characters they feature and how much they connect to each other. I don't think you could get away with doing a weekly Superman title and having all the books actually follow one from the next to the next 
over years and years and years. It is an it is an amazing feat that we are. I think right. We're we're getting toward the tail end of it at this point, right? It's got like another two years maybe before the triangle era is done. That's the thing. So what you and I read takes us to the end of ninety six. Yeah. So we still have. Oh, I guess maybe I'll announce this at the end of this episode. <laughs> we'll, we'll circle back to this. But we still have 97, 98, 99. At the end of 99, we get the arrival of Jeff Loeb and Joe Kelly, right? That whole right. stretch that we've covered on the podcast already. And there were still triangles. There were still triangles. Of their run. Yeah. But as, you know, as we talked about and, you know, we could say again now, I mean, it definitely, it was a different feel. It was largely yeah. new creative teams. I think once Jurgens leaves with Superman 150 at towards the end of, of 99, that's truly the end of an era. And yes, the triangle numbers would continue, but it wasn't necessarily that weekly adventure that you had been having. And during that Loeb Kelly run, it was sh very shortly after our worlds at war, they jettisoned the triangle numbers and that was it. Yeah. So, you know, where we are here, this is very much the end. We're getting towards the end of the true Triangle era, number one. This this era too here is also the long-haired period. <laughs> Literally, the <laughs> right, wedding, right. death to wedding. He, although he cuts it off right before the wedding. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, right after this, we'll get into the electric Superman period. And then, you know, we'll still have some time after that where he's back to the original costume. But, yeah. uh, and then also too, I always look at this, this stretch as an end of an era too, given that, we were building towards a wedding that kept getting postponed on the creative side. Right. So to finally get to this, you know, the postponement of, of which led to, you know, death and on all of those subsequent stories to finally get to this. And also to have that jam wedding album where you have all of the creators coming together, you know, you wouldn't see something like that again. I, I can't think of an instance, uh, you know, other than, you know, I know in more recent years, like Action 1000 and things like that, but certainly within the period of time we're talking about, I think this, the the wedding really is, is you know, not like the line in the sand, but it's it's definitely a line of demarcation for sure. It, it is. And, and, and I think what makes it really special is not only does John Byrne come back to do a little, you know, bit of it, writing and drawing, um, but this is a, time when Kurt Swan was still alive. So you have this little bit of this pre-crisis um, Superman, which it, it wouldn't, I mean, after this, there really isn't much uh, of that era of creators. I mean, Kurt Swan who defined the look for, you know, so many people I know for like, people like Rich Roney, like that is the, you know, that's the era in which they grew up. And so that is the look of Superman. And, and for others, it's John Byrne and for others, it's Dan Jurgens and, and, you know, on down the line, but, but to still have had Kurt Swan around to have been able to participate in that, in that jam, even though he wasn't, he's not post-crisis um, was an opportunity. I'm glad to see they didn't pass up while, well, you know, they could have, they could easily have, have said, you know, this is just for the post-crisis artists and writers. We're not going to include, but, but the fact that he was still alive and they, and they honored him in the way that they did, I thought was really lovely. I thought that was such a great touch. So a little bit later than usual, but let's take a commercial break. And when we come back, we'll give a bit of a rundown of what was going on with the rest of the supporting cast during this time. Uh, and we'll talk about the actual wedding. And I think that'll it'll it'll dovetail nicely because so, what I love so much about that wedding album is 
seen like the entire, like every supporting cast member you could think of is there and you get interactions that you wouldn't normally see. So let's take a commercial break and then uh, we will uh, continue and conclude our discussion. We'll be right back. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina for people of all ages and walks of life. Since 1983, this nine-time Eisner Award nominee uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material available. They pride themselves on their significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available to anyone, anywhere, via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the Acme cast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Film lovers and filmmakers should check out this family of film festivals. Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. I was fortunate enough to have my work shown at these festivals, and I found them to be very enjoyable and well-run events. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals generally, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news and updates about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, be sure to listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and currently under new ownership, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany the next time you're in the Garden State, and be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Flat Squirrel Productions is an affiliate of BCW Supplies. The next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP, that's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions, to save 10% on your order, and it helps support the show. Thank you. Oh Yeah Comics celebrates and promotes everything that is wonderful about comics, toys, artwork, and the joy they bring to people. Visit them in person at one of their three locations, Harrison, New York, which happens to be my local comic shop, Skokie, Illinois, or Muncie, Indiana. If you have children and have been looking for a family-friendly store, look no further. Join Oh Yeah for exciting events, including creator signings, how-tos, and more. Visit AllYeahComics.com and follow Oh Yeah on social media for more. Their name says exactly how they feel about it. Oh yeah. And we're back. All right. So as promised, we'll talk a bit about what was going on with the rest of the supporting cast. And obviously we've touched on a number of these items already. I'll sort of, I'll rattle them off and just give a quick rundown and then we can unpack uh, whatever we want to the extent that we want to. So certainly, again, we've talked a lot about the Lois and Clark relationship, Clark's anger and frustration, which I think really came through. It doesn't last for so long. I really did enjoy the bit, though, of Lois and Laurie living together, especially after the breakup. And they even got to the point where, like, they were really becoming roommates and friends. I, I like that little aspect of it. Uh, we talked about Jimmy. So in, in the earlier batch of of issues a couple episodes ago, we talked about how Jimmy quit his job at the Daily Planet and Cat Grant hires him and he becomes Mr. Action and he's this <laughs> rising star on-air reporter. But you know, you do see it go to his head. You see him shirk his, uh, the personal relationships. There's one scene where, you know, uh, 
Lois happens upon him and Dana, I think, on the streets of Metropolis. And he's just like in his own head, in his own world. Uh, and then, like we said, you know, he, he uh, uh, you know, tries to tell this story about Lori without really having all of all of the facts and, you know, puts her in a tough spot. There's another instance where he steals a tip, uh, a note that Lois had left for Clark. This is when we're dealing with the Lex and Contessa uh, wedding so there's some some shadiness that he gets up to, um, and we we could circle back to to Jimmy, but that's the Jimmy of it all. Cat not a ton to do in this stretch, although she does oust uh, Vincent Edge from GBS because uh, he didn't want to report on something that was going on at the prison where his son was incarcerated, and she reported him to the GBS board, and and he was ousted. And speaking of the son Morgan Edge, he escapes from prison. I think he'll come back kind of in the, next, in the next stretch of the Triangle era. Of course, we talked about Perry White's cancer battle, uh, Lex and, Cont- and Contessa uh, marrying, and also Lex returning to public life during the Final Night storyline, which we, we didn't reread Final Night itself, but we did read the Final Night crossover issue. So that was a major development uh, for, <laughs> for Lex and the DC Universe that took place in, in Final Night. This Alpha Centurion uh, character who, you know, is not, not a favorite of mine. He, th- thankfully, we don't have to spend much time with him in this stretch of issues. Um, Lex manipulates uh, the situation to uh, make it appear that uh, Alpha Centurion's handpicked soldiers have have lost it. Uh, and in disgrace, he sort of flies away. But then he does show up for the wedding. Uh, I don't know that we see much more of him after this, which would be good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and of course, you know, we also talked about uh, Lori herself and, uh, you know, how she sticks around and whether motivated by friendship or romance or a little bit of both, you know, uh, you know, definitely is, is showing an interest, uh, in Clark. So that's, was kind of what's going on around, uh, a, a lot of these other things. Uh, where, where would you like to go first? Do you want to talk about Jimmy or, or uh, Perry? Let's start with Jimmy. Okay. You that's got, I know you, you got started. strong feelings about Jimmy. <laughs> I do. I do. Um, <laughs> so, Correct me if I'm wrong, but there, he did at one point have a sort of Silver Age persona as Mister Action. Correct? That is not a new development, right? That that wasn't that was an alias when when some of the sillier storylines of the I think the Weisinger era, uh, where he was uh, you know in costumes and gallivanting around. I'll I'll, I'll go I'll co-sign on that. I'm not positive. You know, it's if the pre-crisis, despite okay. the episodes that I've done, you know, still remains a gap, you know, that's been you know partially closed, but it's, it's still a gap. So I can't say for sure, but, uh, that sounds right. And would certainly be in keeping with a lot of, you know, what else we've seen. Yeah. And I, and I'm sure if, whether we're right or wrong, the, there will be at least one listener who will sure, sure to chime in and, and tell us whether we're right or wrong. But I, I believe that that's the case. And so if that's the case, as I believe it is, it's a, ni- a neat little sort of call back that I'm sure would please long time readers and for those who were new to the title it wouldn't mean anything anyway and it would be just fine so you know that's one of those you know things where yes you know pre-crisis is off limits but if we can tweak or just kind of you know call back to it all right fine um i don't mind the fact that he tried something new and broke away from the planet because he has to he has to evolve as a character as well like he can't stay the cub photographer forever um I just felt like he went so far so fast. The the stealing the note was it for me. That's that's why I made the comment before that I thought he was a dick because because 
it, it didn't even feel like a crisis of conscience for him. He made that choice very quickly and very easily because he wanted that scoop. He knew that it would advance his career quickly and easily, and he was not afraid to betray his two best friends in order to do it. And I was sort of done with Jimmy Olsen at that point. Um, and and it wasn't, I mean, in this particular run, we don't really get him to come back from that. He doesn't, you know, he's still on that that trajectory. So I, I just did, I didn't love Jimmy Olsen here. I, I understand. And I, you know, I don't remember the ultimate payoff to this. I mean, I know he ultimately, you know, realizes the error of his ways, but I don't remember exactly how we get there. I'll be, I'll be curious to see that. I think what, what makes it especially frustrating, you know, him branching out on his own, I, I think made contact made sense in the context of the story that we had, we had seen earlier where, you know, he didn't feel like he was getting the opportunity that, that he wanted to, or getting his due, getting, you know, his shot uh, at, at, at a byline at a front page story. And then he struck out on his own, which is, you know, I, like what you're supposed to do, right? You know, and he, and he did that. But I think where it gets frustrating is that, you know, Kat, who he's working for at GBS, she's the head of the news division. I, I, I feel like she's conducting herself with integrity as much as she does talk to him about, you know, like, oh, this story might get picked up by broadcast or, you know, she, so she's definitely hammering home, like we need the big stories, but I, I never get the sense that she's, she's, pushing him to or endorsing any sort of lapse in, in morals or journalistic integrity. And on top of that, he spent years at the Daily Planet learning from Perry White and Lois Lane and Clark Kent. And it's just sort of like, on the one hand, I may, you know, he's still, a, a not a, I don't want to say a kid, but he is a young man and he's still sort of finding his way. But at the same time, I guess it would have made a little bit more sense and maybe he would have been a little bit more sympathetic if you saw more of like a devil on his shoulder, whether it's cat right. or someone else sort of pushing him. But a lot of it seems to be self-generating and it's just sort of like, all right, you got to get your act together. And, you know, we get, it's it's not, it's not uh, redemption, but we, we do spend a little time with him in the wedding album where, you know, he thought he was going to be the wedding photographer and then it's a, it's a very nice scene with him and Clark where he's like, well, you can't be the wedding photographer and the best man, right? And right. you got that nice moment. Although, you know, we talk about how maybe there's not a lot of meat on the bone when it comes to the Lois and Clark relationship. You know, like this friendship, you don't really ever see much of it. Uh, there was that little point after Reign of the Superman where Clark was living with Jimmy and they were blasting music and everything. And that was like so short-lived and was quickly yeah. uh, ignored. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know that that was totally earned, uh, especially in the context of what was going on, but I, I'm still, I'm still in Jimmy's corner, even though it's, it's getting harder and harder to root for him. Yeah. I think in a moment like that, sometimes I think we get confused with what feels earned based on decades of history between the characters and what feels earned within the story itself, because certainly given, you know, I, since the late thirties, early forties, the relationship that has been building between, I mean, yes, there was a, a reboot after crisis and all that, but, but people know the Clark Jimmy dynamic. And so given that, yes, it makes sense. But given, I mean, certainly the 37 issues we read leading up to or 36 leading up to that. I, I agree with you. I don't know that, that, that the payoff is really there. I mean, it's a nice moment. I, I felt it, but they, but again, that's because I have a history with the characters, not necessarily because of what we read here. 
uh, agreed. And you almost like, yeah, that's the thing. Knowing what we know, big picture, it's like, yeah, Jimmy makes sense, but it's like, you almost feel like, well, shouldn't it have been Pete? Yeah. Yeah. I thought I had the same thought. I know. Uh, But yeah, so that's sort of, uh, you know, what's going on in, in Jimmy's world, uh, you know, during this period. And, you know, again, he steals this tip about uh, Lex and Contessa's wedding. You know, they're largely in the background for, you know, most of this. Like I said, Lex returns to public life during final night. He emerges from hiding and he says he's eager to face his day in court and prove his innocence. But first, he has to help the earth get through this this crisis. I'm of two minds about this. Part of me is like, hey, I wish his return had been in the pages of the ongoing Superman titles. But at the same time, the 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 sun eater extinguishing Earth's sun and the imminent end of the world feels like that would be an opportune time for him to reemerge and 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 believable, right? That he would risk, you know, being imprisoned immediately. And and also the fact that he actually was able to help in that dire a circumstance you know, gives him a little bit of cachet, right? That he, you know, might be able to parlay that into public favor, whatever you want to call it. So I, I, I guess it, uh, I guess it made sense. Yeah. This is one of many stories involving Lex where, you know, his, his goals are certainly not always altruistic, but he, if he wants to be the figure he wants to be on the planet. The planet has to exist. And so when the planet is threatened, he will step in to be heroic, even if it's for his own selfish ends. He will save it in order to do that. Um, he has stepped in to save far less than the planet, most notably, and, and this was the very first episode I ever did with you, No Man's Land, where he steps in to help out in Gotham City when it's completely cut off and destroyed because it ultimately serves his goal. So he will play hero when he when it serves him. And this seemed like a perfectly reasonable time to do that. If he can, if he can parlay this into something that's advantageous for him. I mean, if, if look, if Lex Luthor isn't the ultimate in self-aggrandizement, then I don't know who is. And so this seemed like a perfectly reasonable way for him to re-enter public life. I, I I was totally totally on board with that. There's a there's a great line, a great moment when he's talking to the Contessa, and he says something. I'm paraphrasing slightly, but that mm-hmm. uh, you know we're always defined by our enemies or measured by our enemies, and you know the Smallville fan loved that because that was one of the final things that Michael Rosenbaum's Lex said to Tom Welling's Clark Kent in the finale of Smallville that the great men and women of history are always defined by their enemies so i like that i like that little touch i also liked in the wedding album when he shows up to or is it uh, i guess it's the issue after that i think it's the issue after the wedding album when he shows up to offer Lois and Clark a ride right he shows up to offer his limo he's like i you know, my invitation must have been overlooked, but I wanted to, you know, Lex Luthor is nothing but magnanimous and I wanted to offer yeah. you this ride. And Lois, meanwhile, has this like hot red Lamborghini that that some prince gifted her uh, and, and she tells him off. But I'm glad that, you know, Lex had that little moment uh, because, you know, we have we have known of his interest in Lois uh, going back to the beginning of of the burn era. So it was nice sure. to get a little a little button uh, to, well, not buttoned because it's not like we're done, but <laughs> it was nice to sort of circle back 
to that. Uh, one other thing, this is not related to uh, the supporting cast per se, but well, I guess it is talking about Jonathan and Martha when uh, Clark goes to visit to tell them about the breakup. Just a quick side note, <laughs> Jonathan is like, at the beginning of that scene, Jonathan is like, what, our daughter-in-law, future daughter-in-law, she's not dead, is she? He like, he goes, <laughs> he goes there real quick. Uh, but anyway, you know, Clark has to contend with these twisters. And like you said, this brings in Jay Garrick and the great, you know, I, I enjoyed that a lot too. And, and just Clark sort of wrestling with like, how does he make it work? Right. And the fact that he has an example that he can look to great touch. But I, I really like how tornadoes have really now become a bit of a theme across Superman media. It's how season one of Smallville ended. Of course, it plays a very, uh, <laughs> pivotal role in Man of Steel, <laughs> Uh, yeah. it's, it's a big part of Superman for all seasons. We get these few issues here. And I remember, I remember getting these issues. Heroes World in the Galleria Mall in White Plains, New York was my go-to shop at the time, but I would go to other shops in Westchester. And I remember, I just, for whatever reason, I remember getting those twister issues at Dragon's Den on Central Avenue in Yonkers for anyone who knows the area or knows, uh, that, that chain of stores. So I remember, I remember getting those issues, but yeah, I just like this idea of, of Clark having to contend with the forces of nature in that way, as much as he's often going up against adversaries, opponents, but I like this idea of him having to deal with, with that. So it's just like another example of what has become a, a recurring theme in a lot of these stories. Yeah. I mean, look, it makes sense. I mean, Kansas is, is right there in tornado alley and, and to have a, a twister hit every now and again is you know, perfectly reasonable. Um, it also, I think, is one of those ways where, number one, you can't like, punch your way out of that one. And you don't have to have, you don't have to create a backstory or a motivation for that particular villain. It's just a force of nature. And sometimes it happens and it is directly threatening the people who mean the most to him, his parents and Lana and Pete, you know, the, the residents of Smallville where he grew up. And so I, I, I've always liked the, the tornado in Smallville trope um, here. I found it to be fine. I it didn't, it's not that it bothered me. I just, I, again, I was so, I was just so much, I was so involved in the emotional core of the the breakup that i just didn't want to take the detour to have to deal with the tornado i i just wanted to i wanted to get more into the emotion of it and that's that's the only reason why i sort of bristled up against it well it's funny because when i listed those examples right three out of four are part of his origin story smallville man of steel for all seasons mm -hmm. what we just read obviously is much further along in his career I think there is kind of something to the tornado being somewhat of a test for him when he's very early on. I think that's where it works best. I think you, you know, it's effective enough in these stories, but I don't think it, I don't think it has the the punch that it does in those other ones. So maybe that's a little yeah. something to do with it too. I agree. I think it does work better in the origin story than it does this far into his career. But again, it's, you know, it's one of those things you go back to at this point We're we're 10 years into the post-crisis reboot. And so, again, you have you have a, a turnover in readership where you have, you know, brand new readers who are coming on all the time. So they probably didn't read Man of Steel. And this is the first twister they've seen him go up against. So I get it. You know, you're going to recycle. Just, you know, 
For those of us who've seen it over and over again, it just becomes sort of that well-worn trope. Of course, I meant Man of Steel, the movie. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. (laughs) How could we forget? (laughs) Right, right, right. Sorry. Uh, (laughs) uh, But, well, you know, that's the funny thing, because at this point in time, right, we hadn't had For All Seasons. We hadn't had the Man of Steel movie, obviously. So, anyway. Uh, so maybe this actually proved more, and this was before Smallville too. So maybe this was a yeah, little yeah. bit of an inspiration for for what was to come. Yeah, fair know. enough. Fair enough. We talk about stories packing a punch, but I'd be remiss, and I, I actually unfortunately left him off my rundown a few minutes ago. But Bibbo Babowski gets a <laughs> shot at the title in these issues, and I, I love man, I love Bibbo, and you know, you know, and the audience does. I'm a huge Rocky fan, and and he articulates something as best as Bibbo can, but in this, but it it really ties in with uh, you know, one of the the core tenets of of Rocky, this idea of the puncher's chance, which is something that I ascribe to personally. I feel like it's 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 been very ins- inspirational and motivational to me. This idea that you know you can be outmatched, you can be the underdog, but in that moment in the ring, all you really need to do is land, is land that one, that one blow. Like that's what it comes down to. Like everything else kind of leaves once you step into that ring. And so I love that Bibbo got his moment. And this was during that mixy arc about, you know, him making yeah. people's wishes come true, come true. And it, it raises this question of like, oh, Bibbo, like, did you only win because of this luck? And it's like, you know, luck might've gotten me here, but like everything else that was in this ring, like I own that and you make your own luck in the ring. And, I, I loved it. I love the Bibbo, the Bibbo bit. Yeah. I mean, I don't have anything really to add to that. I, I agree with everything you just said. I just, I, I made me, it made me wish for more Bibbo in more stories. I think that there's a way, I, like we haven't seen him in, in modern continuity years at this point, to my recollection. Anyway. And I think he's one of those supporting characters who really, really works and I wish that we could find a way to contemporize him. And, and you know, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how you do that, but I, I would like to see him make a return. I'd like to see a version of him now that that works. I think there's a way to do it. I think you just make him a little bit more, a little bit more grounded, a little bit less cartoonish. Yeah. Um, you know, you don't need to make him a rocket scientist, but, you know, maybe you give him a little bit a little bit more, uh, you know, as far as his mental acuity, you know, you just give him a little, you give him a little bit more. And I think, you know, he's, he's a vet, right. And he's a boxer. I think you can lean a little bit more into his past, but I think he serves, I really do think he serves an important function as like representing the, the people of Metropolis because it's, you know, Lois and Clark and Jimmy and Perry and Kat, I love that supporting cast and Ron Troop and, you know, Lucy Lane, you know, but they're sort of in their own, especially the Daily Planet staff in particular, yeah. like they're, you know, kind of in, in their own category here. Like Bibbo is really man on the street, man of the people. And yeah. I think that's an important perspective to have. And that was actually one of the things I did like about uh, the final night issues. You know, Clark's losing his powers because the sun is gone. And you see there, you know, there were a few issues where, you know, you see how he has inspired the people of Metropolis, but also how they in turn help and inspire him. Like the... Uh, the, the workers at the power grid, you know, when he's trying to restore power and it's like, it's, he's trapped under the ice underwater and like, that's going to be it for him. And the, you know, the people rescue him and uh, you know, there are a few instances of things like that, um, which, which I think is cool. And I think Bibbo can sort of represent a lot of that. So I, I think there's a lot of value to, to Bibbo. 
dealing with a cast of characters who are, by and large, so exceptional. Bibbo, by comparison, is unexceptional. And because he's so unexceptional, that's what makes him exceptional. Right? He is that every man, and so he represents that role. And because of that, he is us, and so he is in his own way exceptional. And that that could be the role that he fills. So, I, yeah, I, I think that's the way to make it work. Well said. What was your take on on the Perry White of it all? Um, incredibly moving. Um, I think it was a really good way um, to, obviously, to get Clark in the role that they needed him in, um, but also to create the drama. I mean, the scene where he finally tells Alice. I mean, he's he's sort of he had told the Daily Planet staff before. He even told his own wife and a and sort of adopted son who overhears it. He doesn't even tell him directly. Um, is incredibly powerful. Incredibly powerful. Um, I think he comes back a little too soon from it. And he, he's and I get it. He you know he he's a news hound. He, he can't stay out of the newsroom. And we see the effects of it. I mean, he tries to come back and, and overextends himself and really wears himself out. And he's essentially told, like, you got to go home. You can't. This is too much for you. Um, and ultimately, I don't know where it goes from here because I haven't read beyond it. But I thought it was a really interesting It was a really interesting development for, for the character. I liked it. I mean, I don't like the fact that he had cancer, but I like I liked the story development. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, not, not to spoil what came out, but he, you know, he makes it and he's, you know, re- returns to action, but figured. Yeah. I mean, it was, I, I, I'm glad, look, I, I always love Perry and I always love when we get to spend some time with him and now his, his growing family. And I loved, there was a, a scene between Perry and Lois at the gravesite of Jerry White. Yeah. And that was a great callback. You know, we've talked about this, you know, they killed off Jerry and there was a powerful story, you know, years earlier, um, you know, more recently in the triangle era, we talked about the death of, of cat grandson, Adam at the hands of toy yes. You know, I think if you're going to make these choices, right. And put these characters through these things, there should be follow-ups and payoffs to those things. And so I liked when you had that scene with, with uh, Perry and Lois. And I really love the scene at the wedding when at this point, Sam Lane is, you know, protesting and he, you know, he's not going to show up and we hear people's whispers throughout uh, the the church. And they, you know, we hear people talking about how uh, Perry and Alice are seated with, uh, with Lois's mother. And someone remarks, well, he's been more of a father to her than, than Sam. And, you know, very, very true. Uh, Yeah. And, and especially to see the effect of Perry's diagnosis on, on Keith, you know, this young boy they just took in who, as Perry references, his mother has just died from AIDS. So he's seen a parent, succumb to an illness. Uh, so, you know, you really, you really feel for all of them. And I, this was such a great little callback that, like I was saying before, I love in the wedding album, all of the little interactions that you get that you typically don't, where you have the scene between Jonathan and Perry and Perry's like, Hey, did I ever thank you for convincing me to quit smoking? And Jonathan's like, yeah, but you have cancer. And he's like, yeah, but it, you know, it, it, it they caught it early enough and it's not progressed enough. And I, I, I can beat this. And that might not have been the case if I had kept smoking. So, you know, that's going back to when they were on that cruise together years and right, years right, ago. Right, right, right. So yeah, like little, little stuff like that was, uh, was great. But yeah, I mean, it's tough. It's tough to see Perry like that because he is, is so strong and, and vital and to see him, you know, kind of emaciated and, 
you know, unable to carry out his duties like that. Uh, and also, you know, he keeps it, like you said, he keeps it from Alice and Keith initially. He keeps it from Lois. She doesn't yeah. find out until she comes back from her her uh, her overseas reporting. Uh, he doesn't tell Jimmy. Not that Jimmy deserves to know for, you know, being a dick after all. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, you have a lot of moments where, you know, you see people kind of receiving the news and processing it. And, um, you know, look, this was one of those instances I guess it's fitting that this happened during the stretch where we spend so much time on the relationship drama because this was a very real, a real threat, a real story that uh, that that he went through. So, um, Absolutely. you know, um, I mean, thankfully, I'm glad, you know, I'm glad he made it. I would have been so, that would have been heartbreaking if they, if they offed Perry. Uh, yeah. And, and, and because of the way DC operates, it, I, he would, he would be back today anyway. You know, this it wouldn't have lasted that long, but still, I yeah, I, I I don't I wouldn't have wanted to see him. I think it's enough to just mind the drama of him having to go through, you know, the treatments and and for him just not being able to be at the planet. That's the most devastating thing for him. That's where that's his whole life, and and for him not to be able to do that. But to be fair, also, it, I think it helps to give him a little bit more focus on family, who he often neglects and i say that not not in the sense that he's neglectful as a person but he's he's so into his work that he doesn't always spend the time with alice that he should and now with you know with a child he's not always around because his job requires so much of him so to to allow him to kind of reprioritize his life i think is is a good move for him it's a good move for him um and again it also allows us to see Clark taking on that role and, and, you know, putting him in that, in that central position and, and watching him get overwhelmed. And, and, and by seeing Clark in the managing editor role, it only highlights just how good a job Perry does because he manages all of it. And, and I mean, you don't often see him crack in that role and Clark cracks almost immediately. Yeah, I I, lo I love that whole that whole bit. And there's a really funny moment where like Clark kind of snaps at people and then he, you know, he he steps out or he goes into his office or something like that. But then he he's thinking later on about, you know, like I better get back quickly otherwise like who knows what they'll start to say about my bathroom breaks. And it's like <laughs> it's funny, but it is also not not to nitpick, but it's just like yeah, and there's no it's it's believable enough that he could be Superman and a reporter cuz he's constantly running in and out. But it's like in this role, in what world could he possibly maintain this? But you really feel that stress and tension that he's under. Yeah. Uh, and like you said, it's a great way of showing, not telling, right? It's one thing for Perry to like to list off all the things he does. But to see Clark, to actually show Clark, try to do that and buckle under the pressure. And like you said, Perry, you know, he, he returns like sooner than he should. Uh, and in large part during the final night and he... Is a, you know, he busts out the typewriters and they go to the printing yeah. press and they put out this like end of the world edition, yeah. uh, which, uh, you know, was, uh, you know, again, just as far as Perry's dedication and the role of the paper in the city, I, I thought was, uh, you know, it, it was great. I want to ask you, so the issue bef right before the wedding, the quest of Lois Lane, where she's in Butran and she's tracking down this heroin smuggler and uh, she meets this local who, you know, kind of takes her under his wing and talks about this American who had, uh, you know, kind of straightened him out back in the day. He used to be this pickpocket and he stole from this American and, and was was imprisoned. Uh, but before justice could be met, i.e. his hand chopped off, the American rescued him and showed him a better way. And of course, we find out in the end that it was Clark Kent. 
Uh, and this sets her on her path back to Metropolis. <laughs> Again, we know that they really had to step on the gas with the storyline. My question is, and it's like one, it's one issue where they get Lois back into like, okay, I want to marry Clark. Do you think that the issue works? Do you think it covers enough ground where it's believable that we can get back to this place of reconciliation and have the wedding album the next week? I would really like to say that the issue worked for me, but I can't. I, I recall thinking that it just happened so quickly. And I get that there has to be a moment. There has to be something that Lois learns, a revelation, an epiphany where she, she goes, of course, like, of course, of course, this is the thing. Of course, Clark is for me. What have I been thinking this whole time? I, I, all that other stuff is petty and, and nothing matters as much as the two of us being together. I get that there has to be that moment. I don't know that this was that moment. I don't know that it does enough heavy lifting in such a short time to work in for what it needs to do. It needs to get us to the wedding. It needs to get her home. It needs to get her back to Clark and it needs to get them married. And I, and I, I wanted it to be that. And it's an, and it's a Jurgen's friends issue too. And I just, I, if anyone could pull it off, it was them. And I just felt like, like you had said a, a few times, like it just must have been some sort of edict that was like, okay, it's time. We got to get them back together. And, and they sort of scrambled and, and made it work the best they could. And, I, yeah, I wish it had worked better, but it just didn't for me. Yeah, like it's definitely, it's a great Lois issue. And I love this message of, you know, Clark's act of kindness years ago, right? Comes back around. Beautiful. Yeah. Like he put that out into the world and then Lois received it at a moment when she really was at a crossroads. Yes. At the same time, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't get at, it doesn't address the issues that they've been having. Now, funny enough, the you know, I don't think we'll have uh, like a, enough time to like unpack the honeymoon issues, but basically the brother of that uh, heroin smuggler targets Lois on, on when they're on their honeymoon in Hawaii and Clark gets shot and taken and Lois has to rescue him. And this is, again, Clark has remained powerless fi following final night. Yes. Uh, at the beginning of the next year of the triangle era, we'll have the power struggle arc. He'll get his powers back, but we're not there yet. I feel like that story does a better job because now she's in the position of being the the protector, right? And one yes. of the things that was coming between them was her feeling like he was always hovering and and being overprotective of her. Maybe that's the story that could have, you know, there could have been, you know, they could have been sent on assignment together or some, you know, something like that. And that might've been, you know, that would have taken more issues, but I think that yeah. might've gone more towards addressing the, the central conflict between them. I think what we got was a great issue then I don't know that it really answers the questions that had been presented. No, I totally agree with you. And, and my note on sort of all the honeymoon issues together, which, you know, amount to, I hate to say it like very little, like they're fine, but, but the, the reversal of, you know, Clark being shot and, and captured and Lois having to use her wits and the resources around her to rescue him. Um, I thought, sort of justifies the relationship. It, it brings everything full circle from where this whole run started, where he, you know, failed to rescue her in the way that she felt that he needed to. And then her feelings that 
that was the problem to begin with, that she was always being rescued. And, and the fact that she got to do that for him, I thought, was a really nice capper to this whole run. I just felt like the stuff that we needed to get there didn't always hit as well as it could have. That, yeah, that's the thing. I think this arc, I mean, obviously it wouldn't have been the honeymoon, but I think that arc needed to come first, where yeah. now he's powerless and she's the one who has to rescue. And now they've, they've walked a mile in each other's shoes. Yes. That I think that would have done it. I agree with you. I'm glad we get it. It is a good capper to this whole stretch of issues. And you see like, okay, now you see the path forward for them. And I, I can appreciate whatever was going on behind the scenes that they had to work within. But yeah, I think that that would have been, uh, that would have been more effective for it to come there. Yeah. Otherwise yeah. I thought the honeymoon stuff, you know, it was, it, was great that we got a Superboy appearance as they were in Hawaii yep. and you know they got some alone time together and that's wonderful. Uh the second issue of the arc where Clark has been kidnapped, it's the bulk of the issue is of is a flashback. Yeah. Where you know Clark remembers that he knows how to make it look like he's dead and we get this like I, this you know untold story of uh, of a time when when he had to to do that in Metropolis and it's it's fine. I don't know. That felt a little, that just felt a little off. I, I don't know what that was about, but, uh, but yeah, otherwise, otherwise a, a fine arc as far as the wedding album itself. I mean, we've talked about, you know, so much of it already. Is there anything else about the wedding album that, you know, that really stood out to you that you wanted to talk about? Um, no, I thought I, obviously it's, it's, as you said, a really nice opportunity to get to see everything converge, right? So not only do you get, you know, all of the supporting characters coming back together for the the story of the wedding, right? But the fact that every writer and artist and, and you know, creator who helped shape Superman in this particular era, and as I mentioned before, one, Kurt Swan, who, who you know, helped shape him much, much earlier, the fact that they all came together, the fact that it sort of culminates in this giant gatefold, which I don't know how it looked when you read it online. I actually bought the hardcover wedding album thing, which has the issues leading up to it and the some of the honeymoon stuff as well. Um, but but this gatefold that folds out, um, and the fact that it's it's Dan Jurgens penciling it and Jerry Ordway inking over him, who was also one of the sort of premier creators in that early uh, burn era and, and, and you know, well into the triangle era, I just thought was such a wonderful tribute to the people who made this era of Superman, what it was. And again, not to say that, you know, if, if people go back and listen to, you know, all the episodes starting from, you know, the post crisis all the way until now that cover all of these issues, they'll see that you and many of your guests like didn't love everything, but, as I think we've established here a couple of times, what they were able to pull off, the number, the sheer number of comics they were able to produce in this era, it is a miracle. It's a miracle that anything of value came out of it. And the fact that we got so much of value, so much that's still worth talking about, um, is such, a, such an incredible feat. So the wedding album for me was less even about the wedding itself and more a testament to all of the creators and ideas and characters that unfolded in, in the 10 years of between, you know, just post crisis to this moment. It was, 
it's such a such a beautiful, beautiful comic. And and beautifully said. And I do think that this wedding album is a perfect encapsulation of everything that I have liked best about the Triangle era, both the parts that I read for the first time last year and then the the parts of it that I had grown up reading and now that I'm now revisiting because in, in going through all of these stories, yeah, there have been some truly compelling stories and, and plot lines. Like I loved all the Eradicator business when originally the Krypton Man and, and all of that. It was great. Of course, a huge fan of, uh, of, of, of the death and funeral and rain and trial, you know, like there's a lot of great stuff. And, but what I keep coming back to, and I think why I've enjoyed revisiting and discovering and discussing all of this stuff is, is the supporting cast, is that soap opera esque quality to it. And these, and these subplots and the, the, just this ongoing story featuring all these, and there's the ebb and flow. There are people we don't see for a little while and they pop back in and they leave again but in this in this story, I mean, it's it's almost wholly devoted to these characters. There's a little bit of action, but it's not much. I mean, it's really about these people. Uh, so it's just like it's just a perfect representation of the for me like the best parts of this era. And it's you know even having like Dan Turpin and Bibbo talk about boxing, you know, yeah. it's like oh yeah, like okay, <laughs> you know, I don't typically associate those two characters together, but it's like yeah, like there's this point of connection between them. So uh, yeah, it was. I also have to say, weirdly, you know what actually <laughs> sounds so stupid. You know what made me tear up a little bit? The the Batman scene. Yes. When Batman's like, look, we've got Metropolis covered, and you see all the heroes flying above. He's like, Don't worry, no one knows where you are. They've just been told you're on a secret mission. Like, you don't have to worry about this. And it's you just know what a relief that is for Clark. But then I think what got me even more when he's like, Lois Lane was looking for an apartment. It's a long waiting list, but fortunately the building is owned by Bruce Wayne. Like moving Monday. It's like, oh, like he really, you know, he really looked out for him. Uh, I, I love, I, that was great. I love that. Well, so I, I had a similar reaction to the scene with all the superheroes uh, flying. And I believe that's a Ron Fred's page too. So that just makes it even better. Um, but it would, it would have been very easy to disrupt the wedding with a physical conflict, to have some supervillain take this opportunity to attack. I mean, we've seen it before in, in scenes like this in other superhero comics, most famously, like all the way back in the Silver Age, but Reed and Sue Richards got married. And the whole thing was just uh, you know, a melee of, of epic proportions. And, and the fact that they showed restraint didn't do that, but, but helped to explain that even if there had been a threat, you you are off duty today. This is your day and you get to enjoy it. So if something needs to happen, and look, maybe there's an untold story somewhere in there where somebody tried to attack and the other heroes took care of it so that Clark and Lois remained completely oblivious to it. But but I'd like to believe that it just was it was a, a day of of joy, happiness, and celebration that was free of conflict, as it should be, because again, it is about these characters. And if and if you and I are, are really to stand behind our opinion that what makes Superman great, what makes this book great, this ongoing saga great, is the soap operatic nature of it. It's the ongoing struggles of these characters who we really we want to see as real people. Then they need to have this wedding. They needed to have this wedding. Um, and the fact that they did was was very, very satisfying. I just, I loved it to pieces. 
Yeah, it's this very traditional church wedding. Yeah. And and I think that it was, you know, this breather and this moment of of normality was was both earned because we've we and the characters have been through so much. <laughs> yeah. But it was also the appropriate choice because we had been through so much. And right. we'd been through death and trial and destruction of Metropolis and 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 you know uh, you know childhood friends turned enemies like we've we've been through so much and so and there's still so much more to come. I mean, very shortly after this, he'll have a whole new power set and costume. Right? There's always this this turmoil and change. And so I think to give us to really just play it straight for this for this issue in particular, it held up great. I really really enjoyed it. Uh, and look, I mean, when I when I think of of this mythology and these characters, I, you know, I think of Lois and Clark together. Do they necessarily need to be married? Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm sort of flexible on that front, but that relationship is so foundational. And what's, what's funny, I was thinking about this, you know, there was that, uh, you know, pre-crisis, that action issue where they married off the, the, the golden age, uh, Superman and Lois of, you know, this of earth too. Right. But otherwise, other than I'm sure some imaginary stories, uh, you know, in the Silver Age, it's it's not like we've seen this wedding told and retold the way we have with the death, for example. Absolutely. You know, we have this version, of course, the Lois and Clark, uh, probably the most notable. Uh, Smallville, and now Smallville, of course, went the opposite. <laughs> well, not totally the opposite. They gave us 99% of the wedding, and then we had the apocalypse attack and before they could actually be declared uh, man and wife. So we had most of the normal part uh, and then it, <laughs> and then it went awry. Yeah. But other than that, you know, I mean, unless I'm totally blanking on something, I mean, we've not, we've not seen this unfold, which is, I don't know, it's just kind of interesting to me, but I, I love, I love yeah. the way it was depicted here for, for all the reasons that we've talked about, you know, including, and yeah, especially the fact that Jurgens gets to be the one uh, and it's just so, you know, he's been, like we said, I think the chief architect of this era, as much as they're all working together. And the fact that he, you know, he, he wrote and drew the death, I think very yeah. fitting that he, that he got to, got to depict this moment. So uh, this was really a treat to revisit. And I, I've so enjoyed talking about this. Same, same. Absolutely. No, this was, this was absolutely a treat. And, and I'm, and I'm glad that it actually sort of reframed the way I'm, I'm able to look at the superman comics from the from the 90s with a little bit of a clearer head because sometimes i just you know i get into it and, and my expectations as as somebody reading in 2022 are sometimes clouded by that and, and i i really do have to remind myself of what an amazing feat it was for this many creators to have kept the book going on a weekly basis for that long and and for that i'm just I'm incredibly appreciative that we that we get as much great stuff as as we got I agree. And, you know, as far as just perspective and, you know, keeping an open mind, the electric Superman saga gets a lot of hate. Eh, hate might be too strong, but it's, it, it definitely does not seem to be particularly well-remembered. <laughs> so I'm very curious and interested and excited to go back to it and see, and, and see how it holds up because I don't know. I I think it was it was easy then and probably still now to look at a lot of these 90s storylines as as gimmicky and I think in instances they were in fairness mm -hmm. but I, you know throughout all of this even the storylines that didn't hold up as well for me there's still an integrity there and there's still 
a consistency in the storytelling. And so as I will eventually get to the Electric Superman saga, that's that's what I'm going to keep in mind, and I will go in with an open mind. And on that note, last year we had Crisis Till Death. We covered 86 to 93. This year we are now concluding, uh, in just a moment here, uh, Death Till Wedding. We covered 93 through 96. Like we said, at the beginning of this podcast series, we covered the Loeb-Kelly era that started at the very end of 99. So we have, there's a period that we've we've yet to mine on digging for kryptonite. And so I, I will confirm that these triangle era events we are doing, uh, they it is a trilogy. It's always been a trilogy and I've always known that and now I'll announce it. So uh, <laughs> you can get ready for uh, Wedding Till Electric, which will come next year. And that will cover 97 through 99, including the beginning, well, the, the, the duration of the Electric Superman era, Superman Red, Superman Blue, the Dominus storyline, and the King of the World arc uh, that essentially brought us to the end of this iteration of the Triangle era. So Wedding Till Electric next year will complete our Triangle era trilogy. So get ready. It's going to be a lot of fun. Unbelievable. <laughs> Whether whether I end up on any of those episodes or whether I am listening like everybody else, I am beyond excited that you're going to be able to finish off this this decade of of comics. I just what you've what you've been able to accomplish. You know, we've talked a lot about what the creators at the time have been able to accomplish, but what you've been able to accomplish in in bridging these gaps for yourself and then for your listeners is is nothing short of of miraculous. So well done, well done. Well, wow, that's very gracious. I really appreciate that. And uh, once we're off mic, I'll talk to you about what I have in mind for that. <laughs> uh, for, <laughs> you got it. For you for that. Um, but Scott, thank you so much. And I really, audience, thank you so much for joining us for this episode and this entire event. And I want to thank all of the guests who have joined me for this seven-part series. I, you know, I, I enjoy everything we cover on the show and all of the conversations. Even if I don't love the material, I always enjoy the conversations. But whenever we go to the Triangle era, it's a very special place for me. And I, you know, I've gotten the sense just from hearing from people. I'm not alone in that, you know. So I think it's it's always kind of a highlight for the show when we're able to to do this. So thank you to the guests, thank you to the audience. And again, remember, we have a very special uh Death of Superman 30th anniversary episode uh coming up next week. So you want to make sure that you come back for that. And as always, it's about what you do, it's about action. Support the show and receive exclusive additional content, including my DC Movie Rewatch podcast at patreon.com slash anthonydesiato. Thank you to all patrons for enabling me to produce this show. Also, be sure to explore the other shows within the Flat Squirrel Podcast Network, which is home to Digging for Kryptonite, another exciting episode in The Adventures of Superman, Summoning the Zords, and My Comic Shop History, all hosted by yours truly. Subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. Visit flatsquirrelproductions.com for more. Thank you all.